Hello, beautiful people. I am Oliver Perrin for Semiagog, uh, joined uh, for this discussion by Matt Erickson, uh, Real King Pilled. Uh, I am very much looking forward to this discussion. There are some uh, ways in which our various hypotheses overlap, and yet this gentleman uh, knows uh, quite a bit more about things going on in the tech sector. Um, uh, and not just the tech sector. I don't doubt about things like uh, uh, Bitcoin, central bank digital currency, um, a technology in uh, general, and political figures in that field. What's been called the uh, the Thiel Mafia, and 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 any number of other things. So I'm, I, I'm very much looking forward in, uh, to getting into this discussion with him. Before we get started, uh, I just want to um, say how much I love that intro music, which was prepared for for me by my friend Cyberpunk Internal Affairs, whom I see in the chat. Thank you very much, sir. I also want to say that I only know about uh, Matt uh, via Pete Quinones. Um, he's been on my channel. I've been on his great guy. I would never have heard, uh, anything about Matt's ideas if it hadn't been for Pete. So please do check out the Pete Quinones show. Um, you can find him on all fine platforms and podcasting, um, venues. Um, also we're going to be getting into some discussion at least, um, peripherally to a, a certain extent about, um, Machiavellianism and these sorts of things. And uh, while one particular uh, area where you can find out more about that is, of course, uh, Moldbug, uh, Yarvin, um, I do want to recommend uh, my friend, uh, Academic Agent, who has put out a book called The Populist Delusion that covers elite theory all in one handy volume, all the most important thinkers. He's handled it with uh, deftness. And uh, yeah, so he's, uh, he's someone I want to uh, throw a shout out to uh, as well. And buy my books. There are no links down in the description below because uh, I received a channel strike. Uh, so as a bad boy, I'm not permitted them. But buy my science fiction uh, novella, a bit of a cyberpunk play. It's set in Istanbul in the year 2076. A, a book thief in pursuit of a rare manuscript is pursued by a remorseless corporate hitmen and an esoteric sect of assassins. For those of you who um, are... Uh, into things, uh, 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 I don't know, into poetry. Uh, there's my collection of poems. It's called Cinders from the Bloomery of Youth. You can find that on Amazon as well. Again, I can't provide you with links. But before we get started, it would only be proper for me to allow my guest to introduce himself. Thanks for bearing with me during that long-winded intro. Um, and to uh, to shill whatever he wants to shill. Welcome, Matt. Uh, tell us all who you are. And um and 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 shill your shit. <laughs> Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm Matt uh, from the King Pilled channel. Uh, we're primarily on YouTube, but we also uh, we were able to recruit uh, a good friend of ours who graciously uploads the podcast because we're very busy men. We're businessmen, in fact. Um, so he uh, uh, he's got them uploaded on the podcast. You can find us on all your your typical podcasting uh, networks as well. Uh, and then I, I tend to tweet a lot at Real King Pilled is is the handle. And I am a basically a recovered ANCAP, right-wing ANCAP, Hoppian type. I uh, went through kind of a long journey to get to that point and then, uh, then encountered Orthodox Christianity and kind of backed away from politics for a little while as I went through my catechumenate. And it kind of reframed the way that I, I, I view reality in general. And so as I've started dipping my toe back in the, uh, the, the, the political waters, I uh, just 
I don't know. I mean, I've, I've been seeing the world in a very different way. And I think part of that has enabled me to, to evaluate people and their, their motivations and their instincts and kind of see it in a, in a more holistic way. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's the kind of the gist of King Pilled. We've done a lot of talk lately about, uh, we talked about the generations, you know, boomer, zoomer, Gen X, millennial, the way they relate to one another. And that was kind of what led us to stumbling onto this PayPal mafia phenomenon that, uh, I'd never even heard the term PayPal mafia. I was obviously familiar with PayPal and the people involved in that. And, uh, and I've been, a. uh, uh, some a fan admirer appreciator of uh, both Elon Musk and Peter Thiel for a while, particularly Peter Thiel's uh, relationship to Rene Girard and mimetic theory. Uh, so these were all um, uh, sort of disparate threads that kind of came together, and we started talking about this PayPal mafia thing, and everyone else, you know, just was, "Hey, what's this you're talking about?" and started hitting us with questions, and my DMs blew up with people saying, "Hey, there's this thing that I was looking at recently that seems to relate to what you were talking about. Have you considered this?" So. Um, it's been a little bit of a like drinking out of a fire hose kind of with all this stuff coming coming at me, and I'm trying to 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 synthesize all of it and sort of make sense of it at the same time that I'm I'm, I'm trying to parse what is it that I'm seeing, and then what does it mean that I'm seeing this? Um, so that's that's I guess that's the perspective that I've been bringing to bear on this. Yeah, well, I found it uh, very interesting indeed. Again, because um, I've had some you know I had my own speculations about who's backing Trump, you know. Uh, obviously, you've got the idea of an organized elite. Um, you've got the idea of a circulation of elites, probably, which has to do with your having looked at the generational cohorts. Um, and uh, you've, you've got the idea that people don't get ahead without backing an organized minority of elites. Uh, again, anyone who's interested in this, check out The Populist Delusion, as well as Nima Parvini's other books, Academic Agent. Um, but, uh, you know, there were, there were a number of... I guess a good way to start before we get into the Thiel Mafia is how I kind of came up to a dead end in attempting to figure out what's going on uh, with Trump and who would be backing him. An old friend of mine, uh, Tim, who longtime channel followers will know about, um, used to talk to me about the rule of fives, and he never told me where it came from. But he's like, generally, you're going to have a network of five people, and they're going to overlap, and they'll touch other networks of like five people. And without these, with, without these relationships arranged, I mean... In certain ways, they're almost like, um, um, what's the word I should use other than the T word? They're, they're almost like uh, active, illegal, dissident cells and how they can overlap, but they'll have cutoff points and the rest um, in terms of factions within elite groups. You know, there's no way that anyone gets ahead without um, considerable backing, especially in the face of determined and entrenched institutional opposition. You know, he used to joke back in the day about how before people were selected to be the candidate for some high office, you know, they'd go on a fishing trip and out there on the water in the canoe, they'd have a little talk, you know, these kinds of things. And so I believe that very much characterizes what's going on out there in the world. So I began to say, well, who's behind Trump? You know, and it was not immediately apparent. You know, you had your Sheldon Adelsons and these kind of people who um, clearly put money behind him. Uh, there were people who clearly wanted to ride on his coattails once it became clear, you know, once the wind cock or weather vane had turned and indicated the direction, you know, everybody put their their nose to the wind and said, we better we better climb on board. But uh, basically, I looked at whose interest he seemed to wish to serve while he was in office. Uh, and he was definitely uh, serving the interests of the military industrial complex. Definitely. Um, uh, he was also definitely dealing with manufacturing 
and the return of manufacturing and at least certain kinds of heavy industry, you know, with his focus on steel and these other things. And so I began to think of my think to myself, you know, you've got your, you, you sort of have your technocrats, you know, you've got your people that, um, that are taking advantage of the uh, revolution in uh, data and services and uh, well, you know, the imposition of an ever more granular panopticon. Um, and, and that could range from people with online payment processing, you know, one of whom, uh, one, one person who has his background in that will get into. Uh, it could be things like uh, operating systems that then, you know, you get brought into the club as I believe Gates was similar to how Rockefeller was. As my friend Tim used to say, they force you to put everything into a foundation um, or a, a trust in order to be able to ensure that your wealth has has its uses constrained and circumscribed. Um, and I think that happened with Gates. I think that happened with Rockefeller earlier. You know, you could take a look at um, what happened with uh, Gates, him being attacked back in the day when I was younger, um, having uh, everything... Uh, antitrust stuff brought against him until he towed the line and formed uh, a trust. The same thing happened with Rockefeller, but eventually these people were admitted and became a part of the club. These are the kinds of people I would imagine are behind all the major political players. So the military industrial complex overlaps with industry. Steel comes back into the country. Trump wants, wants to bring manufacturing back in. And I think to myself, yeah, I think there's an MIC angle. And I think there's an old traditional like manufacturing uh, industrialist base, which does to a considerable extent overlap with the old idea of the capitalist. Um, and, and so from there I began to think, well, you know, these could be people like, I'm not saying it's the Krupps family, but a family like Krupps, you know, they've got cannon foundries. They're closely allied with the state. There's an idea of national interest and defense tied together. Well, these people would be screwed by the technocrats because the technocrats are looking for a one world arrangement for everything. Um, so what do you do if we're all is united under heaven and the, the, the supreme global Soviet, you know, with all its uh, iconography designed by Gene Roddenberry, uh, does in fact float, uh, above us in its capital on the moon and deal with everything. Well, you're, you're no longer, you've no longer got the drive of a bipolar or multipolar arrangement where you have, um, uh, friends and enemies, so to speak and uh, competing military, industrial, and manufacturing blocks that have their own corresponding security requirements. You know, if you're going to be, uh, you're going to have a, uh, a military industrial complex, you need enemies and the potential of war and the need to upgrade your shit um, continuously, which means big revenue, even bigger revenue in its own way uh, than we saw gutted from the entire world uh, with our uh, recent stuff with what gets called the cocoa virus or the coof. Um, I don't want to go any further into that. <clears throat> and this is all, ladies and gentlemen, I should say, everything we're going to talk about tonight is speculation and hypothesis. Please do obey uh, the whims and caprices of your betters and um, the paths they insist you must take intellectually. Far be it from any of us to do anything other than speculate and hypothesize. So anyway, um, you have this idea of a military industrial complex of competing ones, and that requires enemies. It also requires being able to seal off your own citadel um, in terms of industrial espionage, intelligence gathering, and the rest, because the next thing you know, the Chinese are going to have all the schematics for your F-35s or whatever. And so that requires national borders. It requires attention to the people that are at the top of organizations. 
which um, perhaps uh, goes against, you know, your DEI, ESG, uh, diversity quotas and the rest. Well, um, uh, you, you have to imagine that some kind of loyalty is necessary, um, some kind of national security is necessary and borders are necessary, which really br sketches what I think is the basic ground of nationalism that these new elites wish to accept. As you've discussed in others of your episodes that I've listened to, um, and I recommend everyone go check them out. You know, th this isn't a question of their interests aligning with ours. It's a question of them having interests and um, a certain amount of what is required for their interests being welcome to us. And, and you know, the, the lesser of two evils is still evil, but it's still the lesser of two evils. Yeah. So I, I came up against a hard kind of... Um, wall with this because i did not i didn't see big names of industrialists you know and i i don't i don't have that mapped you know i don't have a strange you know sort of spoke and hub you know uh node diagram of who those people are uh, and many of them their 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 families go back generations and uh in large part they um they avoid um being in the spotlight because that reduces their power and their freedom of action and so you came along and talked about the steel mafia. And just, just one moment, I'll ask you to sort of set forth in some introductory sense for people who haven't seen it. And I said, man, now this is an important angle, not least because I had long thought about Musk. Now, you can say the same thing to a certain extent about Bezos. Um, I don't know not enough about uh, Thiel, uh, certainly Gates, you know, big contracts, cloud stuff uh, and the rest. The data aspect, the ability to host it, to parse it. Um, to do the various big data things with it that um, we, the groundlings, never really get to see, but people behind closed doors get to correlate and make very interesting um, discoveries as a result of. Um, all of that is one angle. But then there's the hardware necessary for the military. And uh, Elon Musk, there's simply no way that he does not have the deepest ties with whatever is behind the military industrial complex as you've observed in previous streams he, he's told he's told very powerful people in the u.s at least the, the the potemkin village of it the front of it the face of it he's told him to take a flying fuck at a rolling donut <laughs> and yet his entire career is based on continuing defense contracts and things like this and if nothing else uh the ability to not be throttled with um ta uh, taxes and regulations that could be custom crafted to destroy him and at the same time i mean this war is being prosecuted in re ukraine in large part because of the intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities uh of the united states and uh, not le not the least of which uh um that you've got the aspect of it all tied in with starlink and I mean, obviously, rocket and uh, uh, a space technology, you know, you have space as the ultimate high ground. And again, the aspect of ISR, there is absolute and battery technology uh, associated with automation um, and the AI applications for decision making, you know, that are associated with driverless cars. I mean, it's just like, you know, <laughs> don't piss down my back and tell me it's raining. This guy has got to be deeply intertwined with the military industrial complex, which related to these other things that I just mentioned about industrial stuff and the need for competing sectors and how that would kind of sketch out a kind of basic nationalism that would be required. Um, but that's where it all stopped for me. And then I came across what you were talking about. And I said, now this, 
this is very interesting. So let me shut the hell up and uh, give you an opportunity to to um, sort of frame this up for our for our listeners, what your basic ideas are, you know, that I've heard about many of them probably haven't. And then uh, let's take it from there, wherever you want to go. Well, that was awesome. That really, that was actually kind of reframing the way that I'm, it was putting pieces together for me the way you were putting it together. Um, so this, the way this whole thing began, I guess I'll kind of take you through the 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 train of thought that I went through because it's in part, this is kind of, I, I've seen this as kind of me going out and sort of exploring this uncharted territory and trying to figure out and just kind of writing about what I'm seeing and sending it back home. And here, you guys dig through this and see, see what's noise and what's signal. Um, and then I'm kind of trying to pick up the signal myself while I'm doing it. So the first thing we were talking about was all this 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 generational dynamic, the um, the dynamic of the of the boomer uh, view of the world. I've called it naive boomer idealism, where it, it's just this. It's kind of the the default settings that everybody in the West has sort of existed under for the past fifty plus years. And the boomer generation is interesting in that it has remained the dominant generation for much longer than previous generations. This is a, a, a part of the, the, the reality of the post-World War II era and the economic boom that came from that and the rise of American empire, the, the uh, creation of mass media technologies and their proliferation over the world, and uh, the development of uh, these, what Eric Weinstein has called the embedded growth obligation, the egos, these uh, institutions that are predicated on uh, like permanent, perpetual upward growth and expansion. But eventually, there's there's a whole bunch of different reasons why these institutions max out. They can like you, you can only have so many universities. You can only have so many law firms. You can only have so many of these certain types of institutions before you hit kind of a saturation point. And when that saturation point hits, there's a lagging, uh, there's a delay between when the saturation point hits and when people begin um, adjusting their behavior to account for that. And the effect of this has been. The boomers have existed at the top of all these institutions for a very long time, and they've allowed many of these institutions to grow necrotic underneath them. But their focus is basically just get get ourselves to retirement, get our social security, and dump the problems onto the next generations and let them deal with it. Meanwhile, them overstaying their welcome. I mean, so technically, Joe Biden is a is by by the strict dates. Joe Biden is a, is actually silent generation. He was born in I think nineteen forty two or nineteen forty three, and people typically say forty five. But these these things are not. It's not a scientific like, like a hard set at the beginning or end of a generation. He's effectively he's a, he's a boomer. So for the the last four presidents have all been boomers, going back into the nineties, which is pretty pretty astonishing to have one generation dominate for that long of a period of time. Um. So. We're getting to the point now where all of the major players who hold the majority of the power and have for a long time at the top of the majority of the institutions are all boomers. However, because they're staying on way past their expiration date relative to other generations, this means when they die off, it's going to be very sudden. And there's going to be a, a big restructuring of the institutions to reflect the, the rise to um, the 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 ascendance to the to the top of the generational hierarchy of people who just see the world differently, who have a different generational uh, conception of reality, and Gen X is are basically like the generation in waiting. So what we've been seeing over the past, along with all the other things that have been happening over the past, I don't know, ten ten years or so, as the boomers have started retiring off, as things have started transitioning, and as the internet has become um, just 
the foundation of, of modern society, essentially. And the boomers were are generally not a generation that's fantastic with these new technologies. We're seeing the 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 ascendancy into power of of the the Gen X and millennial uh, mentality. Now the millennials are kind of like the echo boomers. They they they're kind of like trying to live in the world that the boomers wanted them to live in. Whereas Gen X is more kind of uh, they're they're almost they're kind of orthogonal to the to the the boomer worldview. They and and there's a lot of resentment within that generation as well of this phenomenon. The fact that they're they're they don't they, they didn't get to live in the world the boomers did, where it was just you know massive growth all the time, and you could you know you could uh, work a, a part time job as a janitor to pay your way through college, and then buy a house for fifty grand and sit on it for forty years, and then sell it for one and a half million. They they never got to benefit from all of this. Um, so there's a lot of 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 uh, uh, I guess like friction between the generations. So as I as I began parsing through this, I realized, okay, so there's a there's going to be a shift, no, like no matter what. Within seven years, the youngest boomers, by any metric, the youngest boomers are going to be retiring. They're going to be hitting retirement age, and I think there's a lot of reasons to suspect that they're probably going to die younger than their generational, their earlier generational cohorts, for you know a lot of reasons of the last several years, elevated stress levels, other environmental factors, et cetera, et cetera. So. When they die off, we're going to see a, a a generational wealth transfer. And I'm not just saying from the boomers to their children. I'm saying literally all the boomers are going to be dead. So the only people who can hold wealth anymore are people who are not boomers. This is just a kind of a natural cycle of generations. But I think this is going to be a much sharper transition than than past generations have because of the dynamics of technology over the past four years or so. Um, so this is what made me start looking I started thinking, okay, what are the things that characterize Gen X? What are, who are the most significant Gen X figures that I can think of? These are the people who are probably going to be the most likely to be moving into the positions of, of, of influence and power. And the most obvious ones that came to mind immediately were uh, Joe Rogan, uh, Tucker Carlson, uh, Elon Musk. Uh, the, and, then the, I'm, and I'm thinking of people who I could at least vaguely have some sort of affiliation with. I don't give a shit about the other ones. They're, whatever. Um, so yeah, it's very, very quick point for all the like the foamy mouth people uh, in the chat. None of what's being discussed here constitutes any kind of wholesale endorsement of any of these figures. Yes. I mean, just I, I don't want to waste too much of the discussion on co covering this over and over again when people howl about it. Just it, it's it's a discussion of, of the actual circumstances and the parties involved and uh, recognizing that the lesser of two evils is still evil, but it's also still the lesser evil. Right. What I'm trying to do here is just is just map out the territory. Before I decide how I'm going to navigate through the territory, I want to know what the territory is going to look like and what parts of it are going to be filled with, you know, pits with with uh, punji stakes in them and which ones are going to have, you know, be nice lush meadows. I want to figure this out ahead of time as much as I can. Um, so. This got me sort of starting to look in the direction of I'd always kind of had Musk in the back of my mind. I'd had 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 Teal on my radar. Um, some of these different guys had been had been <clears throat> um, sort of already occupying a little bit of my my headspace. And I was like, well, there's a lot of overlap here. So let me see what is it that characterizes these guys. These these two in particular, Musk and Teal, given their investments, given their influence, et cetera, et cetera, they seem like they're going to by like necessarily be major players. They already are. So what is it that characterizes them? What are their values? What are they um what are they driven by? What are they trying to build? Which direction are they skating? And 
one thing that's very clear is programming, like like programming Silicon Valley, uh, 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 the, the the entire tech sector and its values are a very unique, distinct thing. And I coming from like an entrepreneurial uh, background and spending a lot of time listening to entrepreneur entrepreneur po podcasts and tech podcasts, and you kind of get like the Tim Ferriss world and uh, Naval Ravikant and some of these guys who are they're very clearly not of the same mind as this naive boomer idealism framework. They're, they, they're not our guys per se, but they're much closer to our guys than, than their predecessors, than the, the, the predominant people. Now, I'd always thought of Silicon Valley as being a, um, just like a, a hub of the longhouse, essentially, which it is, definitely. There's definitely a lot of that there. But what became evident as I started looking into this is that there's a very strong strain of anti-DEI, anti-ESG, anti-HR, anti-immigration, um, uh, anti-China. Uh, All of these elements are very strongly represented within this, this sort of cabal of people. And it's kind of, it makes sense if you think about their own incentives. You know, if you're, if you're a, a tech executive who's trying to like bootstrap a startup, you don't want to have to jump through a bunch of bureaucratic hoops. This is just this is just adding to to your uh, the the cost side of your of your balance sheet. The the having to deal with excessive regulation, having to fight with government bureaucracies. These are all things that are just going to be major thorns in your side. Um, at the same time, they've been kind of beholden by this culture, this uh, this this uh, uh, cultural phenomenon that they've they've contributed to with the development of the internet and the effect that that's had. That the the, the um, uh, the degradation that that's, that that's affected on especially young people. They've participated in that and they've kind of been beholden to it. And I have it on good authority that the majority of the real movers and shakers within Silicon Valley are 100% not on board with the whole woke phenomenon. They've been, they've been kind of handcuffed to it. And they're not, again, they're them not being our guys, them still fundamentally being liberals. They, they're sort of, I, I don't know how to handle this. I have to try to tiptoe through this minefield. I don't want to get me too'd. You know, I don't want to get a, a, a lawsuit. I don't want to have the DOJ breathing down my neck. So I've got to kind of like say the things that I need to say and do what I need to do to get along. But that only takes you so, so far. Eventually there's going to be some sort of a tipping point where people are like, okay, enough of this. This is, this is absurd. This is getting ridiculous. And that's when Vivek Ramaswamy showed up. And what my first impression of him was, oh, this guy's, uh, uh, this is Republican Andrew Yang. I didn't give him any any pay him any any attention really. I was like, whatever. He, he's coming out. He's saying whatever. I listened to a couple of his like his performance at the debate, and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, he's doing the Trump thing. You know, everyone yeah, there was going to be people who came out and tried to do the Trump thing, and so that's what he's doing. Whatever. I didn't didn't really care. Uh, a friend of mine was like, you need to like go pay attention to this guy. Listen to what he's saying. He compared him to Obama, which didn't you know that didn't help much for me. Um, but. Uh, so I started listening to him and I was like, wow, this is interesting. This guy's going on a bunch of, he's making the podcast circuit. So, okay. So he, he seems to kind of have a, a grasp on how things work. He's not your standard politician and he's doing long form podcasts, like three hour podcasts. He's gone on Jordan Peterson multiple times for hours. And I was like, Hmm, your average politician isn't going to go carry on a, multiple long form conversations with someone like Jordan Peterson. That, that kind of makes you stand out just to begin with. So I started listening to him and I realized very quickly he does, he has his barnstorming mode when he's like on the campaign trail and it's all like 1776 rhetoric and he's he's just casting red meat to the base. 
But if you listen to him in his long form interviews, he's the closest thing to a neo-reactionary politician that I've ever heard. It's it's like word for word. Some of this stuff sounds like it could have been written by Yarvin or Burnham. He even explicitly cites Burnham in some places. He's talking about the professional managerial class. And I was like, okay, this guy's either signaling to my little corner of the internet, which why? I don't, why, why it's not like we're influential, this little niche group of political radicals online or whatever. Either that or <clears throat> he's coming from this corner of the internet. Like those are the only two things that I could think. And so as I'm reasoning through what he's doing, I'm like, okay, so the guy's a billionaire. He's obviously put a lot of thought and planning into this. And his, the strategy that he's taking is very interesting where he's running against Trump, but he's not running against Trump. And he's saying a lot of, a lot of things that are, they indicate a lot of political savvy. So there's no way that this guy is, thinks he's going to come out and like out Trump Trump. It's not like he's going to be, oh, they, no one expected the billionaire to come out and and run his own campaign and throw himself at the machine and, and somehow come out ahead. I was like, that's a, that doesn't make any sense. He very obviously must have some kind of backing. There must be like he, he's the tip of someone's spear. I want to know whose spear he's the tip of. Um, pardon the euphemism. Uh, <laughs> so then a friend of mine, Jason, at the two bit podcast. He wanted to do, he has a, a bit that he does um, on a regular basis called Friend or Fed. Uh, we're going to be doing PayPal Mafia Friend or Fed this Friday. Um, and Charles Haywood's going to be there. Uh, Pete Quinones is going to be there. Those are the ones I think have confirmed. Um, so we'll get into more of this there. But uh, he said, uh, I want to do Vivek Ramaswamy Friend or Fed. So let, like, like, are, do you want to be on it? Let's dig into him a little bit. I was like, okay, sure. Let's, let's dig in. And he said, I there's this PayPal Mafia thing that I want to look into as well. And I was like, what's the PayPal Mafia? And he sent me a link to the Wikipedia. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay, so this is a real thing. So I just started going through all of the names and clicking through every single person listed on the, on the PayPal Mafia Wikipedia, looking at their connections, looking at what companies they've invested in, looking at the, uh, um, the venture capital firms they're associated with. And I realized, oh, man, this is, this is a much bigger thing than I initially thought. This is actually has the makings of a legitimate counter elite. Because these are people who have resources, know-how, experience. Um, they understand how the system works on a deep level. I mean, if you want people, if, if you wanted to imagine a, a, a counter elite, a challenge to an existing regime that functions based on bureaucratic complexity, then people coming out of the startup culture, coming out of Silicon Valley, there's, fewer, there, there's no, better, no better group of people to really truly understand the, the, the nature of that phenomenon. And then the, the companies that they're invested in are major infrastructure, major digital infrastructure platforms. This is this represents the, their combined wealth is like every every major tech company you can imagine essentially is represented in there. But as I was digging through them, I was realizing, OK, so some of these guys are very clearly not on board. Reed Hoffman, for example, very clearly not on board with this, this notion. But these guys, a lot of them, I just go through and I start looking at them on Twitter. And the best place to look is through their likes. Just go down all of the, the things that they're liking. And number one, they're liking every single thing that Vivek Ramaswamy says about um, destroying the administrative state, um, abolishing the DOJ, um, uh, the, or sorry, the Department of Education. Um, they're very anti-immigration, very supportive of uh, Greg Abbott. Uh, a lot of these things, these are like, these are very strong social signals, especially for guys who live in deep blue uh, territory. Um, 
And another phenomenon I recognize, another pattern I found within them is there's a couple of, there's at least three of them who are from South Africa, who were born in South Africa. There's uh, Rulaf Botha, who is a uh, general partner for Sequoia Capital. There is uh, David Sachs. And uh, who's the other one? Um, oh, Elon is the obvious one. Um, and then there's a couple others who are interesting, like Vivek is a, is a Brahmin. And there's another guy who's associated with a company called Clearview AI, who's a, tightly associated with, uh, with Teal and then also uh, has connections to Matt Gates. And he is uh, from the ruling, well, like the ruling family in Vietnam. So there's definitely a, there's a, there's a pattern here of guys who, even the ones who aren't American or, or explicitly American, are from ruling families or ruling castes in other societies. So they, they're naturally going to have a, an understanding of uh, the way that elite circles function versus the plebs, this sort of thing. So there's, there's a lot of, while they're, they are shit libs, they're also not shit libs in the boomer sense. They're, they're a, different, a different variety of shit lib. I think there's a lot of interesting nuance to explore there. That's, so that's probably a, a decent, uh, to, to catch people up to basically where we're at. <clears throat> Yeah, very, very interesting indeed. One of the things that immediately occurs to me, and um, we probably don't need to go into it at all, but I, I did a stream with uh, Academic Agent and Apostolic Majesty. I recommend it to everyone. Um, AM is just awesome. Uh, but we were looking at the uh, the legacy of the British Empire. And um, in the course of that, you know, the relationship of what gets called the gay, G-A-E, um, for 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 YouTube, I'm going to go ahead and make it clear that I'm talking about the GAE. Um, and, and my view is that it is actually the uh, GA-AE, the GA, the Global Anglo-American Empire. Um, mm. there's, a, there's a book by um, uh, Carol Quigley called The um, uh, Anglo-American Establishment, and it goes into uh, quite a bit on this subject of um, uh, British imperial plans for how to preserve the empire and how that might require um, bringing uh, the United States back into the fold. And it's a, a part of that story was Cecil Rhodes, who's also from South Africa, who became a front man um, and a central organizer for um, uh, what later became the Roundtable Group and the rest. And uh, in the course of that stream, I looked at uh, people like um, uh, J.P. Morgan, and the way in which he was brought up specifically by a banker who took him under his wing, who was based in Britain and uh, who, who was buried in Westminster Chapel, you know, like um, kings and princes and great statesmen are. Um, and so I believe, you know, and we don't need to get into this, but the, the, the idea, I believe that to a certain extent, we're dealing with an animal that lives in the city of London as much as it does in New York. And that to to strictly link this to nations is um, a bit blinkered. Um, and so when you look at the idea of bringing in technocrats from India, which we're seeing everywhere now, you know, um, people want to talk about one particular ethnic group, but we're seeing that the uh, the ability of ethnic cohorts to uh, operate closely and tightly as an organized minority um, is is in evidence for other groups as well. And uh, with, you know, India and South Africa very much being a part of this story with Brexit having preceded Trump, I just have a very strong um, suspicion 
that, that we're looking at something along these lines for people who are interested in my my sort of fumbling thoughts on that thus far i recommend that uh am stream but um one thing i, I want to ask you about if i can i have my own thoughts on it but um uh, yeah i want to hear yours um people are uh saying in the chat you know the kind of things that you would expect you know they they all work for one group um or they're members of that group um or that uh or that there, there, there is no true counter elite. What we're really looking at here is a species of containment. And very briefly, from my perspective, what you've already covered in previous streams and a bit in this one about how the elites are, are going to have interests that overlap among them more so than they do with anything that we're concerned about. There will be a certain degree of continuity, even if institutions are taken over. There will have to be backroom deals, and we've I've already said very clearly that none of this constitutes a full endorsement of these people. Um, but and and one thing I'll add to this is that uh, Trump, as a figure, you know, I do not believe that all the attacks that have been made on him and all the rest are just theater. I do not believe that he, you know, he's facing these all these indictments and court cases simply because they wanted to make him look like a real gangster for the black vote. You know, I, I, I don't believe that. I believe that the evidence of how he's been attacked, how his administration was subverted, um, you know, and I know people will come in and say, well, it's really, he brought those people in. Was it really subversion? I think that for my, for my part, I believe there's sufficient evidence to show that there are people in power now who've been in power for a long time, who loathe him like the plague and want to utterly destroy him. And so to me, that suggests that there is a, a there is real infighting among the, 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 um, legacy, uh, elites versus or, or between and among legacy elites and uh, emerging ones. Uh, and to some extent, it would have to overlap with the generational cohorts that you brought up. But let me let me turn it over to you with that sort of as a as a springboard. What would you say to people who say there is no counter elite? It's just containment. I think, number one, that. Um... This isn't this isn't a, a definitive proof or anything like that. It's just kind of my my knee jerk response to that. That number one, there's there's no historical pretext for something like that for for a, a just a complete absence of of uh, disparate elite interests. Um, I, I think it's the circulation of the elites and the reality of of just if you look at the cycle, the rise and fall of empires and the rise and fall of various different nations. There's always competing interests, and it's you have to look at the situation from an extremely low degree of resolution to try to to try to reduce everything down to a single um, causatory factor. And additionally, I think that there's a very real phenomenon of uh, projecting power where it isn't, which I could even say um, might be a very useful thing from the perspective of of we'll say particular organized factions. Who might want to perceive, uh, might want to be perceived as more insulated and powerful and um, not worth going after, um, and so they would recruit people to project that onto them, make them, uh, you know, the kind of the Wizard of Oz phenomenon, where the wizard is actually just this 
chubby, dorky old man, but he looks like this big, mighty, powerful thing. If you pull back the curtain, there's actually a lot of projection that's happening there. Um, <clears throat> in this particular case, I, I just think that it's, I'm not opposed to that notion. I, I'm sympathetic to that idea of looking for that particular um, uh, faction behind and with their their fingers in a lot of different things because I very much think that is the case. But there's a there's a level of of Machiavellianism that to me to project that type of Machiavellianism onto people is a, it would be a, a, essentially to make them superhuman. If they're able to actually weaponize and manipulate so many different events and and do this this isn't 4D chess this is like like 19D chess. If they have that capacity you shouldn't even care about it. Like there's there's nothing you're ever going to do. Just just curl up in a hole and be ready to die. Like they've they've already we're at the end of history. And this really I think is is a strain of liberal thought. We're at the end of history. There's nothing we can do. There's going to be no difference. Nothing's ever going to change. It's all going to be it's it's just like the the dialectic partner of it. And instead of everything constantly going up, it's everything constantly going down. But this is still I think fundamentally operating from a liberal frame. So that's that would be my uh my uh, more, I guess, philosophical response to it. On a technical basis, it's very clear. If you look at what these people are saying, if you look at the things that they're, they're, they're stating their values, and there's no reason for them to be doing this as some part of like, it would have to be an explicitly organized plot where everybody is behind the scenes, all coordinating their messaging and everything. These people are, um, they're politically naive. I think that's the biggest thing. That's what it's hard for people to wrap their minds around that you could have people who are this wealthy and powerful and successful who have um, a an understanding of political history. And, you know, a lot of us here on the Internet, we we fancy ourselves um, uh, understanders of history and, and elite theory and all this. A lot of these people don't. They just live in this world. They're they're wealthy. They're powerful. They've ascended to the to the many of the highest stations within society. And they're just functioning in their normal everyday life they're not ideologically beholden to one thing or another, really. They're just acting pragmatically. And for them, their interests strongly correlate with America as a polity, America as a, uh, a national entity. Like you pointed out, the military-industrial complex doesn't have anything to do if there's a, a single global government with no enemies, everybody pulled under the same banner. Now, there yeah. are definitely influences that want to make that happen. They want to create that reality. The the dynamic that is 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 being borne out, I believe here, is a essentially a nationalist versus globalist impulse. But that's that, that's using older language that I don't think really applies now because I think what we're watching is a uh, an evolution of political theory in real time. We're kind of discovering new a new political identity, and this political identity I've been trying to parse it out. It's it's the best way I've thought of to 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 differentiate it right now is the difference between the people who want America to exist for the sake of Israel and the people who want America to exist and they think Israel should exist. They have these, these thoughts separately in their head. And it's the people who you're talking about who are reacting to this, they want to reduce those. They want to say there's, this is a distinction without a difference. They want to reduce them into, into one thing. And the problem is th these people don't see it that way. They don't see it as the same thing. And the, the, um, this this political faction we're talking about, this ethnic faction, they don't see it that way either. So by by, it's kind of hard to talk about this while dancing around these terms. But I hope I'm making sense by 
by projecting, by pushing these people into the same category and saying, no, there is no differentiation between you guys. You're actually realizing that you're, you're bringing that reality to bear that. And that reality doesn't have to be brought to bear. This, yeah, and this I, go ahead. I, I just, I, I wanted to add, you know, everyone's like, well, they're going to do this and they're going to do that. And it's all for this one thing. Um, if, if, if you, um, accept the basic premises of elite theory it doesn't fucking matter uh-huh what we think about any of it you right. know like like what does my endorsement of any of this amount to or my rejection of it uh it's 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 all a, it's all a, a joke and a rather sad one to imagine that it, you know it's oh well the people have spoken and and their president will emerge you know uh I, speaking for myself, and I, I would assume for you, neither one of us think that uh, that you know suddenly we're going to like raise awareness through our right. activism, and um, and suddenly the people's voice will be heard, and all these problems will be rectified. Um, yeah, I I don't know if I really want to go down this hole too much uh, further, just because it's um, to me it's it's sort of a, a fruitless wankery and navel gazing, um, and um, and also just sort of. It's not even interesting uh, in terms of, you know, being spectators of the great game. So I, I would ask if I have any people in the house who have a wrench, um, uh, please sound off in the chat so I can see you. And um, just just go ahead and with extreme pre prejudice, remove assholes or at least mute them. Um, I just I, I'm tired of seeing a, a stupid chat because it harshes my mellow and brings my um, enjoyment down. Uh, as as regards what, what is otherwise a uh, 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 interesting conversation for me, um, so yeah, hopefully we'll see some uh, wrench people appear um, and uh, you know um, begin to, uh, to to wield those wrenches. What do you make? Um, this is something I wanted to ask you about. I, eventually, I want to get into things like foreign policy uh, and geopolitics more generally. But uh, but one of the first things I want to do is ask you about what do you is going on with um the pharma power block which mm. is also associated with what i like to think of as the um the global nanny state the idea of it's for your own good we need to take care of you you know i've, I've done videos in the past uh about you know the idea of um you know like a virulent anti-semite you know the kind of language that is used for um uh, social media hygiene uh, closely parallels um, the the sort of flowcharts that you see that are produced by pu public health pr professionals in order to deal with outbreaks of disease. Um, now somebody's saying uh, that Charlemagne is in the house. Uh, I hope that is the case. Also, shout out Charlemagne. Everybody follow his channel. Absolutely. Uh, super peep. Um, please, please um, crush our enemies, Charlemagne, and see them driven before us. Just, just with with a. Uh, complete abandon um so <laughs> um yeah okay now charlemagne stop that man you were <laughs> oh my god dude all right thank you thank you charlemagne thank you uh so with this sort of global uh nanny state thing that um that we see going on, you know, they have the idea that you have to identify an outbreak um, and you have to tra trace the people that have been connected with the outbreak because it could spread. 
and then you have to uh, uh, contain it, and then you have to eliminate it. And that's exactly how they approach things like uh, social media. Now, I bring that up just to, to sort of set the stage for how public health and um, a thought crime hygiene overlap. Um, and we certainly don't need to go heavily into what everyone should well remember, which are recent events with uh, a massive amount of um, public health manipulation associated with literally sucking the treasuries of entire nations dry across the entire world all at once. So I think about things like technocrats like Bill Gates or, you know, um, or, uh, you know, once upon a time, Steve Jobs, or let's say Bill Gates and a Bezos, right? Um, and I think of that power block, the ones who deal with the data, the way in which it overlaps with the military industrial complex and this sort of thing. But I also think about um, the public health complex, which seems to be like, you know, uh, a, a, a minus minus Tirith uh, for the, the global nanny state. Um, for for the the people who will lecture you about what's healthy and what's not, and therefore cannot be permitted, I associate that with pharma. Pharma just got a huge shot in the arm with the recent events I just obliquely alluded to. So you just saw a massive vacuuming of wealth, and we just saw very interesting things with the World Health Organization and coordination between governments around the world in order to impose new systems of. Um, well, of various things. And so that, th that cast or, or power block had a massive cash infusion and a, a massive regulatory set of regulatory coups globally. Um, and, and I don't know how to place them precisely with the other technocrats like a Zuckerberg or a Bezos or a Gates, but we see considerable overlap. You know, Gates talking about certain things that I can't mention explicitly. Um, and so then somebody like Vivek appears and he comes out of the pharma world. Um, perhaps, you know, another interesting thing to throw in there on the side is you have somebody like Ashkreli, who clearly was a uh, persona mm -hmm. non grata and uh, paid his price for that. So I don't know what to do or how to think about what might be considered some sort of in big quotes, reactionary counter elite among the, 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 within the pharma block. Do you have any, do you have any thoughts on all of that? <clears throat> So let's see here. I'm trying to think of, I'm going to have to kind of wander off a little bit of field and then I'll, I'll circle back around on it. Um, one of the major, so, so I was mentioning how uh, there's a lot of these people who are genuinely uh, just politically naive, essentially. They genuinely, to, uh, to me, at least, I'll speak for myself. I see a lot of the stuff that could be construed as transhumanism, um, a lot of the the uh, biohacking and uh, you know life extension, all these sorts of phenomena. And I, I see it with a very cynical eye, especially after after encountering the church and and becoming involved with the church. I see all this stuff with a very very cynical eye. At the same time, I also recognize that for a lot of these guys, especially the younger cohort, the uh, uh, Gen X, and then especially millennial, I, I know from having been around these people in the past that many of them genuinely see this as a uh, a noble feat. Like they, for them, like innovating in biology and innovating in in, in pharmacology, they they uh, 
they perhaps haven't been exposed in the same way I have to like, you know, allopathy versus homeopathy versus versus other approaches to, to medicine. So they're they're operating within this frame where they genuinely see themselves as what well, we need to do. Like our health is going to suffer if we don't innovate um, pharmaceutically. And this is part of the this is this is part of the game. Like you get people drawn in under these premises and then after a while, eventually they realize that they're part of a, of a Borg. And then they have the, the choice, really, are you going to are you going to flush your entire career and everything that you've done and all your wealth down the toilet? Or are you going to are you going to join in? And for a long time, it's been, you know, well, I just uh, that, that, that's like a, that's almost a, a, an impossible choice to make. It's all obviously I'm not going to flush all of the everything down. I'm just going to join in and, and tell myself that I'm a good guy. But what the events of the last several years following on on the events of the preceding years Part of what the, what has happened is that you talk about having massive amounts of wealth sucked into various different coffers. The cost of that, there's been a, a massive social cost that I think is ultimately going to make that whole thing kind of like a poison pill. Because th this was the great thing about Trump. Trump, uh, when he came on the scene, it wasn't him particularly. It was the reaction that he provoked. He, he stimulated the immune system of the regime which is what caused it to arise. And when it, when it arose, then you could see it. So it's no longer speculation. The idea of a, of, a, of a deep state or these sorts of concepts are now just kind of common knowledge. People are just naturally, it's, it's not even controversial really to talk about them anymore. That's a consequence of Trump. I think the events of the years, like at the end and, and, and after Trump, have had a similar effect. It's not that they've, it's not that they woke people up per se. It's that, there are people who actually have the connections and the wealth and the means to begin, uh, I guess, uh, starting to lean their weight against the, the edge of the ship to start turning the ship. They individually, they may not necessarily be able to change anything, but this is the way that these sorts of things begin to percolate. People start recognizing, hey, man, there's a legitimate problem here. Like this is a this is a major issue. The uh, the censorship regime, the um the the uh selling out our our border security sending billions and billions of dollars overseas to various different escapades there's a lot of people now who are like this isn't okay this is like we're, we can't survive we can't sustain ourselves as a as a as an entity if this sort of thing continues they're not so far along where they say oh well i'm i you know i i'm i'm ready to to sign on with uh you know our little corner of the internet and everything that we we see with it but in their own way, like they're like, this is a problem and we need to change something about this problem. Now, when I'm talking about this, I'm, I'm speaking of it really abstractly. I know and part of that's because I'm still trying to parse out all the different parts of it. And I'm not implying that this is a coordinated, planned, you know, that, that there's a whole cabal of guys who are, you know, tech bros or founders or whatever, who are sitting in rooms, sketching all of this out and they're all secret Machiavellians and all this, none of that, not even remotely. What I'm saying is that their own lived incentives are leading them to these conclusions naturally, which if we believe these things are true, we should expect to see something like this because people react and respond to reality. If this is reality, then there's people who are going to recognize it as reality and begin reacting and responding to it. Now, again, yeah. I don't think they're our guys. I don't think that this means, oh, we're going to have um, our ideal Caesar is going to arise and rid, rid us of all ills. I don't think history ever works that way. But I think we're beginning to see the formation of a legitimate movement away from this steady 
uh, uh, trajectory toward the the visions of Davos. Essentially, that's a really big. Again, I said nationalism versus globalism earlier, and those are kind of clunky terms, but it kind of might give you a visualization for it. People who are like, I'm an American. I want to be proud to be an American. I want America to be successful. I want to live in America. I want America to be a safe place. I want us to innovate. I want us to uh, come up with new technologies. I want us to be an economic powerhouse. I want all these things. These people seem like they're using America. It seems like they're just taking advantage of us and they're taking our wealth other places and they're trying to break down our, 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 our borders. Like this isn't, this isn't okay. They're not going to the full extent of that, but they're definitely recognizing this is a phenomenon I don't, I don't want to have any part of. The Gundo phenomenon that happened recently, getting into more into the military industrial side of things, you've got all these young, they're young white guys who are talking pro-family, pro-America, anti-war, and uh, talking about like currency stability. They're all Bitcoin bros. They're they're deeply embedded in all of this. This is this is the next generation of people who are going to dominate within the military industrial complex. There, we're seeing what the future military industrial complex is going to look like. And it's going to be full of, not entirely full of, but it's going to be largely full of a bunch of young, basically the demographic that would naturally be a, a right-wing young white man. That's that's just simply how it is. The, the other connected thought here was um, a lot of this uh, pharmaceutical, uh, hygienic language being associated with with political things is, I think, uh, an effect, a lingering effect of the era of the devouring mother, which has really been this, this, this whole boomer era. The lifespan of the boomers has been this era of the devouring mother. We had the tyrannical father that led up to World War II. Post-World War II, it's been the devouring mother. You've, this is where you've had the rise of the longhouse. You've had, uh, uh, you know, it might, it might start really with, with uh, women voting and then the effect of, of a huge, of like millions of men dying, or not millions, but hundreds of thousands of men dying and then uh, women entering the workforce, all of these things, this has been a, it's been a very feminized era. But again, shout out to my buddy Jason, the 2-Bit Podcast. He's coined this term, the vengeful son, which is what this new era is that we're entering now. We're beginning to see this. Someone like Sean Strickland is the, the, the absolute uh, essence of this. The vengeful son is the guy who resents being, being uh, smothered by his mother. His father was absent and he resents his father, but the way that he tries to express his resentment of his father is by beating his father at his own game. There, so this is going to have, a, have positive uh, uh, dynamics. It's also going to have very negative dynamics. It's going to be much more violent because the vengeful son is the, the uh, what was the, um, the uh, what was the, the, the group of guys who were, um, uh, there was the one stock that they were, uh, uh, GameStop, the whole GameStonks uh, thing. This is this, that's the vengeful son. Like I will take myself down. I don't care. I'm done with you. I want to destroy. O overlaps with Shkreli to, to some yes. extent too, in terms of those attitudes, right? Yes. And that, yeah. And I, and I think Musk, Musk, like saying to 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 Bob Iger, "Fuck you. Go fuck yourself. You're gonna try to you're gonna try to control me with money. Go fuck yourself. I'm not even gonna try to be decent about this. Just go fuck yourself." That's very much the the vengeful son spirit. So I think that the. Uh, the, the this over uh, uh, this 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 hyper concern about making everything clean and safe is a very feminine uh, phenomenon, and just naturally through the course of of the evolution of generations, that's going to go away. That's going to be be uh, uh, wiped out, and and largely in the name of competency. 
Because this is the effect of having this global, this is my big issue with the people who want to reduce everything to a single factor. Maintaining a global power regime that operates through soft power is incredibly resource intensive and demands extreme competency to be able to navigate and manage all of these different complex systems. In order to establish a soft power regime like this, you necessarily have to have layers between the decision makers and the facts on the ground. Which is which is what enables the soft power, the right. But but if you don't have the the, uh, I I used to call it. It's like trying to push. Uh, imagine Sisyphus, right? But instead of a stone, what he has to push up a hill is an enormous, thick-walled garbage bag full of wet sand. You know, there's God. or it's like you know if you yeah. if you catch somebody, if you catch an animal with a rope, it can run right up on you, right? But what you need mm -hmm. is a catch pole, which is rigid. So you catch the animal, but now you have this this thing in between. And both of those metaphors, what I'm trying to get across is the idea that there's nothing to transmit the force in either direction. It's a, a, a ball of mush. And uh, the, 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 the administrator, the technocrat, um, was once a great ideal. You know, in the early days of nation building, what everyone was told, like when Ataturk set up in Turkey as a republic or when the Brits were really blowing and going, the idea was you wanted engineers, you wanted administrators, you wanted people who understood how to make these ever more complex stacked systems, um, you know, with exponential uh, increases in complexity as you move down from your central points of control or whatever, central pedal, centrifugal, however you want to arrange it. Um, they required these people who were quite skilled administrators. And once upon a time, you know, this research into what, what the Brits were doing, it, it would, would have come for, you know, they would have come up through places like Eton and then gone to, you know, Oxford or Cambridge. And that was where they were groomed for their roles. And what has happened to our elite institutions that at a, ver at a minimum should be able to produce competent administrators is instead we've got, you know, um, crampy girl bosses, you know, who are, who are deeply unpleasant and incompetent. You know, we, we can see a sort of a Kamala Harris as a, as a, um, uh, an, ideal typing for, for that sort of creature. And, and without that, um, structure in place you know as you're saying here the the whole the whole fucking thing falls apart um and, and just another point i wanted to add when you were talking about this whole thing of the idea of the devouring mother you know um i'm i've enjoyed quite a bit of <clears throat> Jung in my time um I, I would say that that goes back to uh british liberalism english mm -hmm. liberalism and abolitionism and the rest and you will see that all those threads and themes appear in the united states in new england which is called new england for a reason and there's a reason why for quite some time uh, the elite closely allied with britain came out of that area um, and why you know so many of those ivy league schools are up in that area um just a, a a thing sort of on the side i also wanted to throw in a qualifier again when you talk about nationalism you know, I think we can safely say that the type of nationalism under discussion here for the foamy mouthed, if they're going to get all exercised about it, is that we're not talking about any kind of blood and soil and nobody's suggesting that these people endorse any such conception. For my part, you know, you've underscored the idea of the, you know, general idea, the rising tide lifts all boats. Um, likewise, you know, it drains out and you're all run aground. Um, 
and that there are certain interests that overlap with national interests. I just talked about the military industrial complex and how in order to have that, you have to have an enemy. But if you have an enemy, then you have to have a certain degree of security. You have to take some care or concern as regards loyalty. You have to give some thought to whom you're hiring and whether or not they're going to be reliable, you know, as opposed to, you know, run over in the evening and drop off a couple of um, thumb drives at the Confucius Institute. Um, so when we talk about um, uh, when we talk about nationalism, I just want everyone to understand that we're talking about it in the limited sense that some structure that approximates a nation is required. Uh, for example, just maintaining one country's own native industry or pharmaceutical manufacturing capacity in order to deal with crises. You know, it's nationalism in that sense. So please, for those who are limited. Um, understand that the, the, there are no claims here that this is uh, blood and soil. You brought up something very interesting, uh, you know, bringing up transhumanism when I mentioned the business of uh, the uh, pharma and the overlap there between technology and medicine. Um, and I hadn't really given that much thought. That's something I really do need to think more about. Because of course, I've heard about transhumanism. Everybody talks about Musk and transhumanism, you know, etc. But I think that that's worth underscoring. I don't know where I could carry it at the moment, um, but I did want to stick a little, you know, red pin in it so that it stays there on the map in uh, the, the considerations of our, of our listeners. Um, but I, I want to ask you, since that's another subject, what what is your take on these elites and specifically transhumanism? I think there's so I think there's probably not a unified take among them, but I think all of them are probably inclined toward um, something that I would probably characterize as transhumanism. Now, I think that a lot of this stuff, it, it this this sort of conversation tends to fall prey to the same um, uh, low resolution analysis, typically where um, it it it's. Well, it's kind of like it's transhumanism is kind of like the the thing that you you know it when you see it, but at the same time, like at what point at what point on the lower end of this do we do we do do we do we have the cutoff of transhumanism? You know, when you're like obviously what, implanting a chip a in your brain, <clears throat> right? Exactly. Is a pacemaker transhuman? Is is that is is a, a, a an artificial limb or something? Is uh you know uh, nerve therapy? Is this some kind of, is this transhuman? You know, these, a lot of these things are much more gray areas, I think, than people want to appreciate. Now, the majority of these guys, I, like, I, I have zero interest in ever having anything implanted into my brain. Perhaps if I was paralyzed, my opinion might change. I don't know. I would recommend to anybody that I know, don't go get something implanted into your brain. Just, just, I, I to me, it just seems like a bad idea. Um, and so I think I think a lot of these guys, I mean, I know that Peter Thiel is deeply invested in life extension uh, uh, therapies and um, innovation and this sort of thing. Uh, I don't know if there's a direct connection to like cryotherapy, but I'm sure there is. These are the sorts of things that I don't think you could have a society without this sort of this sort of dynamic among the elite class. I think this is something that if you if you are someone who has attained elite status within a society, by definition, the majority of the average person's concerns have fallen away. You're not worried about the things the average person is worried about. You start worrying about things that the the elite people are going to worry about, the non-average people. And one of those things is obviously going to be things along the lines of life extension and 
um, uh, you know, having just simply having the resources and the capacity to do things like like uh, creating artificial limbs and all these sorts of things um, is necessarily going to be among those. So I'm under no illusions that these, uh, you know, I don't think these guys are Orthodox Christians. I don't think that they're even Christians necessarily at all. I think they're definitely transhumanist. Where I think that a lot of them depart from the existing regime is that they're not uh, sociopathic ghouls. They're they're not uh, like I don't have any illusions that like that Elon Musk is going to like start rounding people up and and implanting Neuralinks into them. He's going to sell it as a product. Like that's what that's what th there's a there's almost a banality to some of this that they these are guys who are they're businessmen. They want to do business. They're exasperated with the existing state of things because it's inhibiting their ability to do business. They want to work. They want to. They want to innovate. They want to um, invent things. They're, they they see themselves again naively, I think, as capitalists. They're capitalists who want to engage in the process of capitalism and innovate and create products. And they want adults running the show. They want to have adults in the room where they don't need to like babysit the government. They don't need to worry about having some HR commissar breathing down their neck for using the wrong pronouns. They don't want to have to step over human shit in the street when they when they're walking around where they live. And they don't want to leave where they're living. They don't want to just cede territory away because they like where they live. So having people pouring across the border, um, the effects that this is going to have on the electoral process, they, they, they deeply, sincerely believe in these things. I, I believe naively, but, they, but the fact is that they deeply, sincerely believe in these things and they want to preserve and protect these things. Free speech. Um, a lot of these sort of boomer con... Uh, uh, aspirational things, but they sincerely believe in them and they want to protect and preserve them. So to me, again, I can't say it enough. These are not our guys. I don't see them as, 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 as my guys, but I do see them as very clearly enemies of the people who I see as my enemies. And so I, I'm happy to see them do battle and I want to see how they, um, I used the analogy before of like trying to map out the territory. I want to see how they're going to regrade the territory so that as I get a sense of how they're regrading it, I can start taking advantage of that and following in their wake. Yeah, that's just a basic entre entrepreneurial and in investing approach. You want to know, as my buddy Tim used to put it, you 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 get on a, a high point and look at the savannah. I said, you know, I asked him one day, well, what's the key to business? And he's like, you just get a high point on the savannah and you see which way the elephants are going to go. Mm -hmm. And then you make sure that as they pass by, you're holding the bucket to catch what they shit out. You know, right. that's it because they're going to go in that direction. And once you figure out where it is, the key for any hunter is to be there before your prey arrives or your game, you know, your quarry. Um, well, okay. So I, I still, I want to get into the geopolitical and foreign policy angle, but there's one other thing I want to ask about, which is the various spokespeople um, that are pushed forward to front this, right? And so an obvious one that we can link to um, Musk is uh, is Tucker Carlson. Um, now, I was interested to watch last night an interview that Carlson did with uh, Lex Friedman, whom I, I loathe, but not least yes. for his his flat affect and all you know his his smarminess and his is also his uh, I'm sorry I should say smarmy and flat affect at the same time, his flat affect and his garçon, um, you know his cheap black suit. Um, he's a, a tedious uh, fucker, but um, yes. but his his interview with uh, Tucker Carlson, I think it's important to. Uh, 
recognize it was for me anyway, it's my view that that, that was not at all an adversarial uh, interview. Um, hmm. And so, you know, perhaps you haven't seen it. It's a long one. Mm -hmm. You can, most of it, you can watch it two times speed, so it won't take you as long. But um, it was not an adversarial interview at all. We've all seen how, um, how what's his name, uh, Friedman was stood up very, very quickly and extruded as a, as a, uh, a talking head pseudopod. Um, and how, you know, all the, all the, the, what do they call it? The, the, what do they call it? Dark enlightenment or dark web or some shit. Oh, uh, um, intellectual dark web. Yeah. The Sam Harris and Brett Weinstein kind of thing. And we've seen that those kind of people like Weinstein, Brett Weinstein has appeared on uh Tucker show. Um, but also we've seen, uh, people like Alex Jones and, uh, uh appear on Joe Rogan. We've uh, seen, um, didn't we see uh, Alex Jones talking to Tucker? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and uh, on the Friedman interview with uh, with uh, Tucker Carlson, they brought up uh, Joe Rogan for a bit, and uh, Friedman was saying it'd be really great to get you together with Joe Rogan, and and uh, Tucker Carlson said some nice things about Joe Rogan, and and you know that's the kind of thing that you you talk about in the green room before the interview. That doesn't mm -hmm. just come up spontaneously in yeah. the discussion unless it's a part of a program. And so I, I wonder what you think about uh, these figures that are being pushed out, more particularly what kind of connections you might have seen since you're looking at these groups and how they interrelate, how people have roots that go back to uh, uh, previous relationships. You know, I think we've seen Musk on Rogan. Um, we've seen some interesting things where Rogan uh, overlaps with Dana White and Dana White is appearing with Trump. And then we have people like Sean Strickland saying, you know, things to a particular audience that does fit the vengeful son, um, you know, uh, demographic, as it were. Um, what do you what have you seen, if anything, as regards these people, how they're beginning to overlap? You know, long ago, we know Roger Stone with Trump and then Roger Stone with Alex Jones and then Trump at the beginning of his campaign doing interviews with uh, Infowars very early on when other people wouldn't give him uh, an audience. You know, uh, what have you seen there, if anything? So I, so Tucker was one of the first people that I, I when I was starting to look for, you know, significant Gen X people that would uh kind of signal that there were the, the i wanted to see okay what's coming so who are going to the people that i think are going to give me the cleanest signal of what's coming i think tucker is very clearly one of those um the i think what i've picked up on largely is i think a lot of this is coalition building i think it's a uh it's people who um would be perfectly happy sharing a society together. They don't necessarily align on, on this thing or that thing or whatever, but they, again, they kind of have this sort of naive view of politics um, still very much in the, the kind of the liberal mindset. And I think some of this is there's this phenomenon I've been trying to kind of tease out in my head. I had a conversation with uh, uh, the Prudentialist. Uh, we talked about the, the, the Californian ideology and sorry, sorry, just have to give a shout out prude another, um, uh, friend at Peep, um, if, if anybody is not following um, the Prudentialist and his channel, definitely uh, do so. Sorry. Yes. Sorry. At Jay Burden as well. He's another another one. Absolutely, another one who's who's up there. Aaron uh, uh, McIntyre as well. Um, mm -hmm. Buddies, go on. Yes, uh, sorry yes. about that. No, no, that was that was good. Um, 
and I've been I've been thinking about this that the the easy answer the thing I've seen other people say is oh they just want to take us back to the 90s. And I don't think that's true. I don't think they want to take us back to the 90s. I think what they see is the American experiment was derailed in the 90s. And a lot of this if you think about a lot of these Gen X aged uh tech and media people who were coming of age coming of age professionally in the 90s, the spirit of the 90s was very uh, it was very infectious. This is kind of like where the, the natural generational cohort would have really been coming into their own for people who were born in the from 65 to 83 or so. The 90s and into the early 2000s is kind of like when they're sort of starting to come on the scene. But then obviously, number one, you have the tech bubble. And and a lot of these people were overwhelmingly uh, affiliated with the the tech industry or the media industry in one way or another. So they were they were affected by the 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 bursting of the tech the the, the tech bubble. And then obviously nine eleven was a, was a re relatively significant event. Um, and so they it's not that they want to go back to the nineties. It's that they see the world as having gone off the rails in the nineties or shortly after the nineties, and sort of like we've been on a 30 something year detour and we've lost time. We've like, where could we have been had we not gotten derailed with all of this stupid politics stuff? And we could have been, you know, innovating and building and, and, you know, cause tech is going to solve everything. This is the kind of the way they see this. So they don't want to go back to the nineties. Cause even in the nineties, they didn't live in the nineties in the nineties. They lived in the future. There there's, there's a very science fiction, uh, uh, impulse among them. I mean, science fiction was a, was a, was a major, uh, had a major effect Star on Trek generation for fuck's X. sake. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So they don't want to go back to the nineties. They want to pick up where they left off in the nineties, but they want to make up ground. So they're, I think maybe part of the reason why this was just occurring to me in the last hour or so before we connected, I think maybe part of the reason why the people who have had a hard time seeing what I'm seeing it may, this is just a theory. I don't know, but I, I'm a West coast boy. I grew up on the West coast. I, I was born in Reno, but then I grew up in um, the Seattle area and then um, uh, went to college in British Columbia or went to high school in British Columbia, went to college in Eastern Washington, and then uh, lived in LA for a few years before moving out to Texas. So I'm, I'm very, the, the West coast mentality is kind of like the, the, the water that I, I swam in. So I didn't even really necessarily notice it, but now be being removed from it. Now I'm starting to, to actually recognize it and actually be able to pick it out. And a lot of these guys, I think whether they are from the West Coast or not, there's a particular West Coast um, attitude that doesn't cleanly map on to any other uh, 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 frame of mind elsewhere in the United States. So it's yeah, very. It's the, it was the last frontier. I mean, I, I always yeah. felt like the, the, the good version of it was embodied in a poet like Robinson Jeffers, you know. Mm. who well anyway the, the the unless you've been out there and and met the 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 old crew that once upon a time lived there um like i mean i don't think anybody has an understanding of what a lot of the people in backwoods oregon are like you know oh yeah they're they're not what everybody thinks about like left coast or whatever sorry no like like eastern washington and eastern oregon and northern california are is some of the reddest country in the u.s it's very very deep red but it's it's different than it's not like southeast red it's not texas red it's a it's a different it's very um it's very insular and uh a, a very kind of libertarian but not libertine 
It's it's like right. the, and not libertarian like the party. It's the old right. American idea of uh, mind your fucking own business and I'll do the same. Yes, exactly that. So it's it's um it's not that it's I don't necessarily think it's better than than you know other aspects of of you know Americana or whatever. But I I, I it's familiar to me and and I'm and I'm recognizing and I'm seeing it in these guys. So they're very there's a very strong libertarian streak to them, which I know for. The majority of people they hear that and you pick out the difference the difference is this is not the uh like whiny shit lib like joshua reed whatever his nuts is on twitter it's it's the the um yeah leave me the fuck alone you you do your thing i'm gonna do my thing leave me alone uh and so it's that kind of meshed with the the california optimism the like the weather is always nice and we're always innovating and we're gonna go work and then we're gonna go surf and um, just hang out and bro around and it's very, uh, kind of lighthearted and, and, uh, um, kind of shallow, kind of, kind of a little shallow and dopey. This is, I think, kind of their motivating, um, spirit, their, their ethos. So I don't remember, I don't remember how I got into that. I don't remember what was, what you were asking that led me down that, uh, well, it was an interesting kind of one. I lived in, uh, San Francisco for a time and spent quite a bit of time in LA. Um, but yeah, I think, um, the the last I can remember it was it was it was the angle of how these different um, talking heads have uh, moved forward. But I might oh, have yeah. uh, skipped a I might have skipped a um, a chain a, a yeah. link in the chain. <laughs> I think it was where I was going with that. Then was that that's um, so someone like like Lex having like, been or, or, or a Joe Rogan yeah. or Joe Rogan. Yeah, yeah, he's. He's very a uh, Dana White is another one who really embodies this spirit, not necessarily from the West Coast, but has the similar characteristics where if you listen to him, he had a conversation with Vivek and there was there was decent chunks of it that were pretty cringy. Um, but there's there's a very um, shallow. But sincere libertarian impulse here that's like, you know, whatever you're trans, I don't give a shit. Can you work? Are you here to work? Okay, cool. Let's work. Let's do some stuff. You do what you call what you call yourself, whatever you want. I don't care. It's a uh, um. These these are not these are not rigidly ideologically ideological people. They're 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 kind of shallow and and pragmatic. But they're um. I think their overlap with someone like Tucker is a is a political coalition building. Um, and, uh, and I think that was your point in the sense that it's not uh, that this is something where they are. Uh, beginning to um, grow together and overlap because there is a a general tendency, or let's say a a, a set of shared concerns on their part, part that that go back to that attitude that you were trying to sketch. I think that is the uh, yeah the link that I had forgotten there. And they well, they um, don't have that globalizing impulse. They don't have that uh, that uh, universalizing impulse. This part of the the sort of the libertarian individualist, Gen X, renegade, rebellious kind of like I'm just going to do my thing. I want to go build some stuff, and I don't want someone like hovering over my shoulder. I just want to be able to make my own decisions and live my own life. There's there's a lot of generational like the latchkey kids was it was a Gen X thing, and those latchkey kids grew up, and now they're getting this nanny government that's 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 imposing on them and their opposition to it isn't necessarily that they see this as a uh um in, in, in rigid ideological terms it's more just like you guys are fucking everything up we're trying to build stuff we're trying to have a great life and you guys are just making everything suck which is to a large i mean it's a pretty fair observation it's a the, the competency crisis is um probably their biggest concern if you reduce everything down it's going to be 
there's all these problems and these problems might be solvable, but everyone that we work with within the government and with the NGOs and stuff, these are all like incompetent morons. We can't get anything done. Um, so it's, it's, it's a, it's not an ideological thing. It's a, it's a, like, we're just trying to do shit. We just want to break shit and, and, and build and, and invent stuff and, and, you know, just do our thing, just entertain ourselves. And we don't want to have to deal with, uh, with mommy and daddy government getting in our business. Yeah. And because they're effective, you know, type A personalities, you know, um, maybe less sociopathic, but necessarily sociopathic to a, a certain degree in terms of their autism or their des desire to see results without, you know, some so like camera lens with like grease smeared on it. You know, they want a sharp picture. They need, you know, mm -hmm. they don't want the bag of mush they're trying to push. They want the catch pole. They want the the apparatus between them and w w what they wish to impose their their will upon. Um, and so they are libertarian, but I, I second your observation that it's not like these, um, these ideologically hidebound freaks, you know, um, they're not egghead libertarians. No, they're libertarians with a small L in the sense of leave me the fuck alone, but they go much past the announcement of saying, leave me alone. And they will push you the fuck away. If you get in their way, um, because they want to get on with what they're doing and the nature of the station that they've risen to in life indicates that you know none not one of them would have been gotten to that point if they did not know how to identify uh, an obstacle or an opponent and neutralize it mm -hmm. um and I, I think that was an incisive observation about um the latchkey kids because uh, you know th these are people literally who grew up with their parents working i mean that's what happened to me and so uh, that's why I like the observation because it's like you're going to bring a nanny in now. I was literally raised from my earliest days with too much freedom. And now you're going to come and tell me that I can't do this, you know, and then tie that with the type A personality. It's just, yeah, it's not, uh, it's not going to work. Um, so I, I wanted to uh, jump over if you're, if you're still, you know, if you're, if you still have gas in the tank, I wanted to. Oh jump over to the, the, the whole business with uh, geopolitics and, uh, uh, and foreign policy, um, you know, because we've been talking about things and I've heard you uh, talk about things along the lines of, um, you know, tech industry and business, um, you know, that entails um, all sorts of international relations, you know, with uh, distributed supply chains and sourcing of materials and all the rest, um, our great interconnected world. Uh, but it, there's also the idea of competitors, you know, um, abroad. So I already touched on some of that, you know, what do you do if your, uh, pharmaceutical industry is, uh, is, is pumping things out in China or India and your problem is here and suddenly you don't get along with those guys. Um, or what do you do if you want to have a military industrial complex, but your, you know, your, your latest and greatest is being carried off by the Chinese and, you know um, reconstructed. Um, there's, there's, there's quite a bit, uh, to that, that, that I can see hints of out there, you know, there's, um, there's some things going on with, well, wait, I should first uh, premise this before I jump over to, uh, Musk in Ukraine, uh, as a first example. And if, if I forget, if I get lot, you know, tangled in my own underwear saying this first thing, please remind me of Musk and, and Ukraine. But, um, The first thing that everybody has to understand is, and it's something I've talked about many times on my channel, I just want to sort of bring it up 
and uh, remind people who've heard it and just to sort of introduce it for you as well. There's an idea of unrestricted warfare. Um, and there's a, there's a book done in the 90s by the Chinese um, or um, a number of Chinese staff officers who saw our amazing success with the, the Kuwait and the Iraq stuff early on. And they said, well, how are we going to deal with that? Because the difference in technological capability and, you know, gear and um, doctrine and all of that at that time was so striking between China and the United States that they had some serious concerns about it. And a lot of people think when you say something like unrestricted warfare, um, I, I'm, I'm laying this out here because I think it would have to be a background for all of our subsequent considerations of geopolitics, foreign policy. Because when I talk about things like competition, competitors, enemies, warfare, um, I want it to be explicitly understood that I'm talking from uh, speaking about it from the perspective of unrestricted warfare. So the, the Chinese basically, they, in my view, they they brought Sun Tzu uh, down to date, and mm. uh, they they reembodied his doctrine in a number of observations about how to conduct warfare. It's set forth that you can find a a translation of it online. There's a PDF uh, that you can pick up for free. Um, you, you'll hear people like Steve Bannon talk a lot about it. Um, but the um, the basic idea is that it's all warfare all the time and everything is war. Uh, you know, and one of the ways my old friend Tim used to put it was uh, basically that the, you know how when you're going to college and you get the textbook, but then you get the workbook with examples and how to apply it and little questions and the rest. So you've got your two textbooks. He always said that the, the Tao was the, the primary textbook and that the art of war was really nothing but like a, 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 an exercise book with applications of the principles of the Tao to war. And, and so unrestricted warfare is this idea that there is no separating the various elements of life. You know, a lot of people will hear unrestricted warfare and they'll be like, oh, it means fifth generation warfare and asymmetrical warfare or that economics can be war. No, no. It means that everything is war. Absolutely everything. It covers fifth generation warfare. It covers economic warfare. It covers propaganda, all of these things. Um, but it has a sort of nasty side effect as well. Uh, or, uh, more than a side effect, it has... Um, an, it bears on every aspect of our life. Basically, if everything is warfare, then everything is a front line. There, mm. there is no rear area. There are no civilians. There, every aspect of life, the family is under attack. Um, our sense of self-identity is under attack. Uh, the, the, the sexes are uh, turned to each other's throats. Um, whether or not we're allowed to have cars or, you know, uh, you know, t taking away the idea that Americans could no longer have their chariot, you know, imagine, or, uh, or, or, or telling you that you can no longer eat steak or, you know, ever more intrusive, um, taxation regimes, like as all of these various nations and business enterprises and, um, political relationships and alliances and, um, and higher level governing bodies that sit over uh, individual nation states or non-governmental organizations. All of these things, as they knit together, it becomes more and more difficult to separate the different parts of the war, of the fight. And so I want to have everybody bear this in mind as we talk about things like, for example, 
um, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, Musk doing things with uh, with Ukraine, right? You've got this idea, well, it's satellites, communication network. Well, you know, uh, all of us who aren't idiots, we recognize that the military applications of that are so important that you could almost say they're primary and that you've really come up with a way to build military infrastructure, but get the public to pay for it uh, along with your government grants because they can ride shotgun on the access it provides to them, right? Um, and it, you could also talk about um, uh, transhumanism in medical tech as being a part of this. If you want to genetically engineer a super soldier or, you know, come up with some new version of mid-century German chocolate, you know, um, there are there are all kinds of ways that, well, if everything is war, then every field of human endeavor and aspect of human relations can be seen as a place where you have to gain advantage and attempt to fuck your uh, opponents. And I think that there are all kinds of ways in which um, we can see the influence of, um, of uh, certain overrepresented uh, groups um, in, for example, banking or law, um, or, uh, or 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 the 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 Chinese with their Confucius Institutes or their industrial espionage, um, and indeed the Russians as well. I don't think that the Russians are uh, uh, in any sense good guys who don't have their own things going on here, who don't nudge certain things and try to restrict other things. You know, all of that's going on in the background. So. Um, when we look at somebody like with Musk with Ukraine or these other people who are, you know, sort of uh, technocrats in their own right. I mean, when you think about a Bezos, I don't really know much about him at all. I don't know much about feel, you know, so my opening question would be, have you seen anything in the course of your research against this background of unrestricted warfare that you think we should know about, or that might be of, of interest in this context as regards um, how they look at other countries um, how they look at things like uh, foreign policy in a very uh, obvious sense. You know, some of them I've heard you say in other streams, uh, at least uh, out front, uh, endorse the Ukraine war and um, announce that they're supporters of it. You know, I've heard uh, people like um, Carlson in his discussion with Friedman yesterday, basically when asked about Israel, said, you know, I, I don't think it's doing anything good for the United States. I think that it's, Israel is a powerful and wealthy country and uh, that they should probably be left in a situation where they have to confront the challenges around them, knowing that it's only them, only they, I should say, that that are, are going to uh, deal with it, that we're not going to become, you know, come running to their rescue. I'm not saying that. Tucker speaks for Musk, but or or indeed for anyone else in particular. But that's an interesting thing to see or or hear. Um, you've got uh, what's his name, um, uh, Judge Napolitano, who got booted uh, from Fox under a scandal for um, some sort of uh, sexual harassment in the workplace. It got settled pretty quietly, but then he just appears with his new channel shortly before twenty twenty four begins. I took very special interest in all the people who suddenly appeared about three months before the election year opened. Um, and he's got a whole string of uh, former spooks and military intelligence guys and the rest who come on. And they bring up really interesting things. Like it's the first time I've ever heard uh, a relatively mainstream figure like Napolitano talking about the USS Liberty. 
you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's definitely some tension going on apparently, or at least superficially, I don't know, uh, as regards, uh, Israel and its activities. Um, another area, again, just sort of teeing you up here, another area where I could see things being interested, you know, you talked about how, how, and one of your recent streams, how, uh, Mark Zuckerberg is doing jujitsu and lifting weights. And he has this long old relationship with feel. And as you were talking, I was listening to your stream before we got on for this one. And I was thinking, you know, I just saw him doing a, uh, basically a PR thing where he'd gone off to Japan to learn how to make samurai swords with one of their Mm -hmm. master blacksmiths. And I'm like, well, that's interesting that right at the time when he's getting a little bit more vocal about China being a threat, he goes to Japan and engages (laughs) in a pastime that has to do with warfare and is tied to, I mean, not just nerds in the U S who like, you know, anime or vampire hunter D or whatever, um, Japanese nationalists themselves are going to notice this. It's going to be talked about in Japan at a time when Japan is sort of the unofficial sixth eye, you know, is, mm-hmm. uh, is of increasing importance. And I also discovered what I had not known previously. Japan had Taiwan forever and mm. it was like the jewel in the crown of the Japanese empire. And they always, against normal Japanese practice, uh, took very special care to treat Taiwan and the Taiwanese well. And so the Taiwanese semiconductor industry is funded in large part by Japan. And so Japan mm. has serious concerns about uh, Taiwan. Japan also went in and built a high-speed rail system there in uh, in Taiwan. So this is the sort of background, because I think to myself, somebody like a Thiel or a Bezos would have to be concerned about semiconductors and chips, right? Or, you know... Uh, against the background of unrestricted warfare, what about rare earth minerals that come from our one remaining half defunct source of them uh, in the United States? You know, what do you know about these people who might be a part of the Theo Mafia or otherwise a character like that, that could be in the emerging counter elite? What do you know about their views on Ukraine or Israel or these geopolitical questions? So this is probably the area that is um where there's the most divergence um i'm trying to look up something here because you just you just triggered a thought uh one of the guys one of the like the inner circle guys within the the paypal mafia is keith raboys uh general general partner at founders fund which is a big founders fund and sequoia capital are big uh if when you're dealing with the PayPal mafia directly and not this more, this broader Silicon Valley phenomenon, but the PayPal mafia guys directly, uh, Sequoia capital and founders fund are both ones that come up a lot. Um, but he just, uh, joined, uh, Coastla ventures as one of five managing directors. Uh, Coastla ventures is an American venture capital firm found by Vinod Kosla, who is the co-founder of sun microsystems. And this was a very interesting thing to pop up because uh, Jason, the 2-Bit Podcast, uh, he and I had been talking about this. And one of our our thoughts was looking at the the infrastructure and stuff that these guys are building out between uh, Tesla, SpaceX, uh, Palantir is another one we, we hadn't really uh, talked uh, about. You've, you've anticipated what was going to be my final question. So I must just say it. There's this whole idea of parallel systems. Uh-huh. And you've talked about it previously, so it immediately like kicked off light bulbs in my head. I just want to give a shout out to Conscious Caracol in South Africa, uh, Robert Doigan, Marhobani, Daigan, sorry, Robert Daigan. Uh, uh, he goes under the name Marhobani. Both of them are on Twitter. Conscious Caracol has talked endlessly 
being in the situation in South Africa about the need to say, fuck the government and it's crumbling shit. We must have parallel institutions so that as it collapses around, uh, around us, you know, we essentially, as the decking of the boardwalk disintegrates, we've got a stone floor just a foot under it. And it doesn't matter. We can tell you to fuck off. So I wanted to give those guys a shout out. I wanted to underscore the idea that the, in, in any discussion of parallel systems, um, anyone who's interested in that should go check out Conscious Caracol because he's talking about how they're literally doing it now, not just Arania building a town, but building neighborhood watch and emergency response and, uh, and indeed whole uh, schools, university, university systems. So I just wanted to, to tee that up since you anticipated what I was going to come to. Go on. Yes, my yes. So this is this is one of the things that kind of tipped us off to the 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 actual power that these guys can wield, because the the whole United States space program is essentially being run through SpaceX now at this point. And the electric car industry is dominated by by Tesla um, in terms of of branding uh, like people. Tesla and electric car have almost become like tissues and Kleenex where uh, uh, Tesla is almost synonymous with electric car. And, uh, and clearly they're leading the, the charge on a lot of building out the infrastructure for it. Um, then Palantir is another very interesting uh, company here because the thing that unites all, almost all sectors, if you want to talk uh, manufacturing, shipping, uh, military, uh, everything is software. We live in a software world. Well, just very, very quickly for those who don't know anything about it. Can you give a quick, you know, back of the cocktail napkin sketch of what Palantir is? Yeah. So it's a, it's essentially a software program that is used by, it's been, they created it in 2003, I think. And it was, uh, the founders were, uh, uh Peter Thiel, a guy named, uh, Alex Karp and, uh, Joe Lonsdale. And uh, Alex Karp is still the CEO. The it was so it was it was the this is I mean the people who who have a problem with 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 uh, with glowies like this this sets off all the glowy stuff in the world. Um, it was uh, Incutel, the CIA's startup fund, was one of their initial investors, and almost all of their early contracts were all military contracts. It's a uh, uh, so it's a it's a software. It's it's a it's a several it's a it's a network of different software systems that are used largely by um, the military and the intelligence community broadly, and then they have corporate clients as well. There's three different: it's uh, Palantir, Gotham, Palantir Foundry, and Palantir Apollo. Are there three different sectors? Um, so they, it being a software world, I mean, all basically all. Uh, military conflicts are now being mediated through various different types of software. The hardware is being governed by software. And the, and then this extends out into all other aspects of the economy as well. Them getting in on the ground floor with that really early on and embedded within the, the system, if you play this out now, things like uh, Starlink and SpaceX and Twitter and Palantir, some of these these technologies it's a legitimate debate over who needs who more. Does the does the regime need the 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 company or does the company need the regime? And which one which one actually if push came to shove, who could who could crack who? Um so okay, so so Rabois uh joining 
this venture fund associated with the guy who founded Sun Microsystems set off a lot of of uh, of, of alarms for us because we'd been thinking, okay, the one big crucial piece of infrastructure that it isn't really clear that these guys or their direct affiliates have control over is microchip microchip production. And our our kind of operating theory was that this is the te- the technicals of this is beyond me. Like am I, I I'm retarded up, you know, I I've got a little bit I'm smart than the average bear, but once you get into technical stuff, you're you're gonna lose me. Um but I understand the significance of the of the of a microchip and the the um the Taiwan uh, microchip uh, factory, the name of it just escaped me, um, but the significance of that with respect to, to the U.S.'s relationship to China. So we kind of put a little pin in our in, in the back of our mind and said, okay, if we see one of these guys making a move on something like that, we're going to take note of that. And our working theory had been maybe this is the this is the reason for Tesla. Like Tesla exists to create the infrastructure and the investment basis and everything to actually yeah, TSMC. Um, that Tesla exists for the purpose of um, uh, basically creating the the pretext and the infrastructure and the investment basis for developing microchips here domestically in a in a way that that they are are in control of in some sense. Um, how did I get into that? Let's see. Uh, you were talking. Uh, well, I had mentioned. Uh, oh, I, I'd gone through my thing and you looked up that guy who is related to the feel group specifically and right so so keith raboys so that was that was that connection there and that kind of that ties in um to to palantir you asked about um ukraine and israel so this was something that kind of i i i didn't know how to reconcile these things because listening to a lot of these guys talk about domestic matters they sound like on the cusp of neo-reactionary at the least almost like paleo-conservative in the way that they're talking about immigration and um, the regulatory state and uh, finance and interest rates and all this sorts of stuff. But then um, there are many of them, and again, this is something where there's a lot of divergence among them, but many of them are very much pro-Ukraine war, uh, very much pro on the Ukraine side of the of the war, and very pro-Israel. And this is why, I, so I was like, how do I reconcile these things? These don't, like, the easy answer is just, oh, just reduce it down to the single common factor that we reduce everything down to, and then you can just dust your hands off and you don't have to think about it any longer. But that didn't really appeal to me because these things don't don't reconcile really well. Thinking of all of these guys as just, oh, they're just like conscious Zionist stooges is is like, it just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't resonate. <clears throat> so that's where this, this, I started realizing that there's this difference between, um, Pro uh, America as the reason for Israel's existence, as in like that that America exists for the sake of Israel, versus America exists and should exist, and Israel exists and should exist. And that's how a lot of this, I think, that's how these guys think. Many of them, I think they they see Israel as an ally. They're happy to do business with Israel. They don't have the the um, the inclination to see them as suspicious per se. They're also not entirely closed off from it. Some of them actually are Jews, but they're also given their kind of natural pragmatic instinct. They're they're people who are sh- publicly showing that they're changing their mind on other fundamental issues, specifically regarding domestic politics. So they're the type of people that, as these sorts of things begin to be borne out, they're they're the types that that 
I wouldn't be surprised to see some of them start to change their tune on something like this. Even if they don't, the the fact of the matter is that almost to a person of these guys that I've been kind of tracking, they they all believe that America should exist as its own standalone polity, and America needs to solve America's problems. There's these other things that are going on, and it'd be nice if we can help out with some of those things too, but would, what would make us even more able to help them out would be if we solved our shit, if we took care of our shit here at home. Um, so and th- there's, a, there's a, a, a segment here too that we haven't really brought in that I think kind of makes this, uh, fleshes this out a little more, and that is, we're talking coalition building, political coalition building. There's this phenomenon called Project 2025 <clears throat> that a lot of people haven't really been talking about, which is interesting because it's a very significant phenomenon. Now, normally, when I see a bunch of like Republican think tanks and NGOs and stuff get together and come up with their new policy prescription manual or whatever, I I view that very, very cynically. I don't expect to see a lot of great stuff come out of there. Um, however, the more that I've started studying this this Project Twenty Twenty Five thing, this is a very different. This is not your your. This is not your daddy's GOP. This is this is a very different approach to politics from a Republican perspective. A couple of friends of mine have actually been going through. They signed up for to get involved with Project 2025. I'll explain it more in detail in just a sec here, but um, they've they've uh, uh, signed up to go through the training essentially, and they've been giving us updates on how rigorous this is. That this is not like BoomerCon. Ah, uh, just go, uh, uh, just go get our good policies in, and 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 you know just exist within the Constitution and operate within these bounds, and it's just like kind of the ordinary GOP sh- like slop. They're very machia- it, It's it's structured with very Machiavellian tendencies. Now, this is a, a a a an initiative that's being spearheaded by the Heritage Foundation, um, in partnership with TPUSA, and then like eighty other different Republican. NGOs and and think tanks and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, how did I get, I don't remember exactly how it got onto my radar, but, oh, I remember what it was. So someone had pointed it out to me and I just kind of looked at some of their talking points. One of their big things is slashing the federal bureaucracy. They're talking about um, how you can recategorize federal employees so then you can fire a huge number of them and clear them out. They're talking about how the thing that had, like, like Trump was great, but what kept Trump from being even greater was him being surrounded by a bunch of, of disloyal people who just backstabbed him and slow rolled his, his agenda and essentially just stonewalled him. And that we can't let that happen again. They're um, talking about like, uh, abolishing major federal agencies. And a lot of this stuff is, is stuff that I've heard before, but not put all into a single, a single, um, uh, uh, agenda like this. And then I was listening to Vivek and I realized they're hitting the exact same talking points. And I don't think that that's a coincidence. So right around the time I started putting this together, up popped on my, my podcast feed, a conversation between Curtis Yarvin and Charlie Kirk. And I was like, okay, I have to hear this because I've never listened to anything Charlie Kirk has to say. I've never, I've, I've, he's like, he's like a, like, I've always seen him as kind of like a retarded version of Ben Shapiro, which is, which is pretty bad. And, but he's talking to Curtis Yarvin. Like, I got to hear how this conversation is going to go. It's probably going to be a tire fire. So I started listening to it and I realized, number one, I don't know if Charlie's turned over a new leaf or something, but he's a lot smarter than he lets on. And the way he was engaging with, with Yarvin made it very clear to me that he was already familiar with, with Yarvin's shtick. He was already, he, he wasn't talking to him for the first time. 
He was asking him questions that were that were drawing Yarvin's points out and actually reinforcing them even better. And Yarvin was making like the best possible case you could ever make to a boomer audience for the necessity of a Caesar, essentially, and using Elon Musk as the example. And then in the middle of that conversation, he mentioned Machiavelli and Charlie Kirk interrupted him and said, he said, oh, Machiavelli is amazing. I spent last summer studying Machiavelli with Michael Anton. And that's when I went, okay, this, there is something going on here. So now you got Heritage, you've got Anton at Hillsdale, you've got TPUSA involved in Project 2025. Charlie Kirk is bringing Curtis Yarvin on to talk about uh, uh, oligarchy, democracy, and monarchy and the necessity of an American monarch to come through and, and, and like wipe out all these federal bureaucracies. And, uh, and, and he's talking about how you can do all of this within the constitution. So you don't even have to go about this as like, oh, we got to throw out the constitution and abolish it. No, actually we can sort of tilt the constitution this way. And look, every single one of these things is constitutional, which is exactly the way to present it. If you want the boomer cons to go, oh yeah. Oh yeah. We can do it constitutionally. Oh, this is great. Um, so putting all of these different uh, uh, pieces together, I realized there's there's a legitimate, uh, I don't even know, uh, like a legitimate reactionary conservative movement happening separate from the Silicon Valley phenomenon. This is something that's happening within the Republican uh, uh, political sphere. You have actual adults who actually understand how the political system works. And they've created a, they called it like their, their presidential training academy or something like that. And it's, it's a, an online college, essentially, that's teaching everybody who goes through the program is learning in detail the, all the steps of, of getting, make it get like a, a bill becoming a law, like how to navigate the media, how to deal with, uh, how to manage a lawsuit, how to handle being the, canceled. The administrative um, stuff that previously would have been caught, taught at Cambridge and yes. Oxford and once upon a time at Yale and Harvard to produce the very administrators who remove the slop from their chains through which they try to apply force. Right. Now we're seeing that this is something that's actually being generated by um, the actual serious movers and shakers within the Republican Party. Now, I, I, I still have a very dim view of the Republican Party in terms of uh, it's overwhelmingly compromised by people whose, ex whose, whose express purpose is to be there and to, 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 to hold things back. But if you're talking about, you know, Michael Anton being uh, involved in red pilling Charlie Kirk on Machiavelli and starting to move in a Machiavellian way. And I'm seeing that borne out in this, this uh, this this uh, movement that's that's developing within the Republican political side of things, and then you 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 tie that in with the Silicon Valley impulse. The whole Silicon Valley impulse is they want adults in the room. They don't want to have to be fighting all of these bureaucracies. They don't want the borders being flung open. They're very suspicious of China. This is the the foreign policy thing. The biggest thing for them is many of them see Russia as an enemy, but they also see China as an enemy. Because again, it comes back to this uh, Americanist impulse. Like we want to have an America that's for Americans and we want to do our American thing here and preserve the American spirit. So I'm seeing a coalition forming here where if I was to game it out the way that the best way it could possibly happen um, for our interests would be essentially that these Silicon Valley guys are like, all right, 
we're going to we're going to we're going to we're going to partner up in this coalition to to wipe out the entire DEI ESG electoral fortification uh immigration Davos we're going to we're going to eliminate that crew and help you guys install you guys in power use Trump as a vehicle for that and you guys are going to repay us by basically taking the chains off of us so we can get back to innovating and particularly in military tech where cuz they're seeing we need to preserve america as a as a as a as a thing we need to preserve america as an entity and the way we're going to do that is by number one having a roaring economy and then having the strongest military yeah, and we just handed uh russia an unambiguous win in mm -hmm. terms of allowing them to take the lead with the real boots on the ground experience of developing new military technology. You know, mm -hmm. now we're on the other side of that as advisors and monitoring everything with observers in place. So it's not like we're not seeing how this is developing. I mean, we're learning as much about their systems and the rest as well. But yeah, there's a there's a strong need to move forward with that now. But just wanted to throw that in. Yeah. What Frederick1483 here in the chat, he says, they're basically articulating and codifying Trumpism and then indoctrinating the transition team into that. Yeah, that's in a sentence. That's that's Project 2025. So we're seeing uh, Trump was, there's been the question of like, well, how do you how do you have Trump without Trump? And you kind of can't. And that's part of why it's becoming very obviously inevitable that Trump is going to be reelected re and he's going to be a vehicle for someone. The question is, who is he going to be a vehicle for? And I see this coalition developing between the, the Project 2025 people, the Silicon Valley people. And now you're starting to see, this is something that Phil Gibson on the, the uh, Saying the Quiet Parts Out Loud podcast, I just talked to him about this. He has been, he's much more on the monetary policy, uh, uh, financial economic side of thing. That's a lot of it is kind of over my head. I don't follow it super closely. Um, I was an accounting major in college, but that was about as far as I got. Um, He's got connections with Tom Luongo, who has a very similar perspective on this, that essentially what we're watching with uh, Jerome Powell and Jamie Dimon in particular is a detachment of U.S. financial policy from, uh, from, the, from the euro dollar, largely speaking, and a um, kind of like an, an onshoring of American financial power for the sake of America. That America is no longer going to be the bank for the world. America is going to be the bank for America, and and it makes sense. Once they laid it out to me, I, I was like, "Well, this actually makes sense because someone like Jerome Powell or Jamie Dimon is not exactly given over to Jerome Powell is is eighth generation Virginian aristocracy. He's not exactly given over to uh, particular ethnic factions who want to turn America into a cash cow for the entire." an entire global system because then that takes away his his toy like what what point is he then he's just a commissar himself and that's one of the things that that struck me when considering you know the the old sort of yankee industrialist families yes um you know these are these are people who and i'm I, these are this is all hypothesis everyone you know yes. just just so everyone is aware um but um but you know it struck me that those are the people who are most disenfranchised you know it's it's a great thing when you all run over there and you're like shit i can make you know a, a four times five times a multiplier on what, what i would have previously by cutting my labor costs and shipping it over to china even with the transport costs taken into account afterwards that's great but then when you show up 15 20 years later when china's blowing and going and they're like no suck a fart you know fuck you um 
that's not something that those people enjoy. Mm -hmm. Now, a certain number of them can still be paid enough for themselves, but you know, uh, in, in order to set them to one side and say, it's worth it for me. And the friction that would be involved in any kind of pushback against that might, you know, sink me. But, uh, as soon as there is a breach in the wall, um, you're going to see a whole lot of people interested in reestablishing uh, their power because mm-hmm. all the people who t- attempt to uh, reckon this, you know, most of us have never seen, I say this often, most of us have never even seen anything but the upper middle class or the very bottom of the upper class. For these people, money is simply an index that indicates power. That's it. And so, you know, you can't pay off people who want power. Um, and so to, to that extent, I think there's, there's quite a bit going on there with people who come from the old sort of uh, governing uh, classes and have the older roots. That's again, this is all a hypothesis. I don't know. They could all be as crooked as a dog's hind leg. I don't know. But, um, but I think it's at least worth um, considering the possibility that there are people who are pissed off about it who are, are, are tired of being fucked out of their peaches and, um, and want to do something uh, to reestablish themselves. Mm-hmm. I would strongly recommend, especially for those of you who are more, I don't know, uh, econ policy inclined than I am. I'm, I'm good at, at listening to it and understanding it. And like, I, I grok it, but then to try to like regurgitate it, I would literally just be just repeating somebody else's words. Um, so I'd recommend go over to, uh, it's qpol.substack.com, I think is, or just quiet parts out loud, qpol, um, and his name's Phil Gibson on Twitter. And then Tom Luongo is someone who's been a big influence on him, who talks about a lot of the same, the same sort of thing. And they've very much, they've very well documented this phenomenon that's been happening with American fiscal policy. And, uh, the, the Jerome Powell, Fed has been a sharp departure in a lot of ways from the 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 Bernanke and Yellen Feds. And there's something that Jerome Powell has. There, there's something that Bernanke and Yellen have in common that Powell does not have. And assuming that they're beholden to the same masters, I think is again, it's part of the um, projecting power onto your enemies that isn't necessarily there. That is and and. Um, it's not that it's like morally wrong or, or ethically wrong to do that. It's that it's, it's like, it's strategically, you're, you're just, you're not viewing reality. You're not seeing reality as it actually is. So you're, you're no longer reacting to actual reality. You're reacting to a, a fictional reality. One thing that Peter Thiel has, has, uh, um, he pointed out, I was talking to, to Pete Quinones about this the other day. <clears throat> uh, he makes the point that ideology, uh, it, ideology degrades creativity. It blocks creativity. And the ability to create, the ability to think of something that isn't, and then to bring that thing into reality through your actions is a very fundamentally human thing. And I'd say specifically, it's a fundamentally masculine thing. This is, this is what it is to be a man, is to create. Yeah, to and I was just going to say that, that that whole thing you said about um, your friend's um, riff, uh, um, the, the vengeful son. You know, I think we're very in, in the interview with uh, with Tucker Carlson talking to Lex Friedman. He kind of laid into him along the lines of, you know, um, how you actually measure whether something's, you know, worthwhile um, and it's how it changes your life, you know. And and so 
uh, I, I tend to agree with you there that this idea of the vengeful son, one characteristic, you know, if, uh, from, from my marketing and advertising and communications days, you know, you make a mood board and, or you create persona and you put them up on the wall, you know, who's your target, you know, and well, what would this archetypal figure that we're going to craft here as a mental exercise have as his or her characteristics? And, um, yeah, I think the vengeful son is about fucking tired of ideology. Like yeah. absolutely up to here, like fucking done with it. Mm -hmm. And ideology is a, I think the way that you can, you can really identify an ideology is um, when you already have an answer to every question that's asked. If you, if, if, if a, a question is brought up or a thing is, is, is um, uh, comes into your uh, sphere of awareness and you uh, identify or name or categorize that thing impulsively before thinking about it and considering it, then that's an indicator that you're beholden to an ideology. Being able to, to thoughtfully contemplate something and not have your mind made up on it before, like at the moment that you encounter it is, uh, um, I think a, uh, uh, an indicator of a, um, a creative mind, a mind that isn't, hasn't been bound by the shackles of ideology, which is ultimately going to be, um, again, I'm not framing this in like moral or ethical terms. I don't give a shit what you do. But if you want to be effective, if you want to be competent, if you want to actually engage with reality in front of you and not through a filter or through a lens, then um, I, I guess an ideology is just kind of like a shorthand tool that you use that ultimately tends toward um, every or, or having a hammer and everything looking like a nail. If, if you have a one size fits all solution to every single thing that you encounter and you can, and you, and you knee jerk name that and identify it as the answer to every single thing, life is a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, a lot of, especially also, when you're getting to complex systems, complex global systems, there's a tremendous amount of nuance and the idea that every single person, every single node within this entire complex system is 100% ideologically honed in on the exact same thing is, 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 I mean, the only way you would think that is if you've never interacted with people. <laughs> yes. Um, and there's the, you know, the, it's, um, you've got the idea of, of being able to do something in the world. And I always symbolize it, you know, going back to an old Austin spare drawing, you know, of a hand and an eye, you know, it's a hand with an eye in the palm and what the mm. eye sees that the hand can then do. But, uh, but if the eye doesn't see it, the hand can't do it. And, um, and it, it, yeah, it's, it, there's, there's a sense in which, you know, we see this, I, I'm, I'm responding here with all of this, bear with me, because we see things like the, the emergence of uh, this, um, I think it's terminology from systems theory or whatever, but not being a tech guy, you know, forgive me, but you know, we're, we're seeing the rise of people just saying the purpose of a system is what it does. They're tired of hearing the ideological justifications for some some reified future state, you know, that perhaps one day will, 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 will enjoy. And I think one of the big problems, like I've talked with uh, Pete Quinones about, you know, what, what, what went wrong with libertarianism. And, you know, uh, one of the things that occurred to me about all that is it's these people, they want to have an answer to everything. There's this drive to have a, I call it like the clavis magnum, which is probably fucked up dog Latin, but you know, the great key, if I have it in my mind, you know, no matter what, what happens, I can hold this lamp up and the light of this ideological lamp will reveal whatever this thing is. But they, they want it to be universal and they want it to apply to everything. 
and they go back in. It's it's like trying to figure out tempered tuning, you know, where you you have you have distortions when you create tempered tuning because it's not exact when you lay out a keyboard so you can hear the ding, the C, and then another octave up, you know, ding. Um, to get it perfect that way, you introduce this certain amount of distortion. Um, or it's like trying to, to, to make pi uh, a number um, that doesn't mm. just continue endlessly for a string. They're constantly trying to have one universal answer to everything. And they're horrified, terrified, paralyzed, literally paralyzed when confronted with the reality, which we're just going to have to take it all on a case by case basis and learn as we go. And we're going to fuck up. There is no, there, there is no ideological, um, key, which is going to fit every lock. And, um, and, and that is a, that's an important thing to understand because as, as you say, it's a key to having to acting in the world, which means you're really talking about, um, um, selective pressure and evolution. You know, it's really what we're talking about. The vengeful son is sick of ideology because he's seen its bio-Leninist fruits, mm. you know, and there's some raggedy ass shit hanging on that tree. And, um, and there's nothing nutritious about it. I'm going crazy with the, uh, the <laughs> chain of chain of metaphors here. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, um, what you think, because you, you brought up this business of, um, you know, uh, Trump, you know, and uh, the fact that he's not going to be here forever. And how do you do Trump without Trump? You know, and and then the whole thing of this uh, project 2025 or whatever to create a transition team and the rest. Um, academic agent has talked about, uh, you know, the way in which Tony Blair comes in and his people with the, the Blair Institute or whatever have policy papers prepared for everything in advance. So when a government comes into power, his um, minions go rolling in. Um, and they arrive with their, their plot factor, you know, big binders of paper that land on the, on the, and their presentations are ready. And they tell you why you have to do this. And all these difficult decisions that your incoming administration would have to confront are right here. They're taken care of. Um, that's a much older thing that the Brits did for quite some time, the same round table group and, um, that other stuff that I mentioned, you know, going from, um, from, uh, what's named Cecil Rhodes in South Africa forward, um, that's the approach they took. Um, so I think it goes back much further than Blair. I think what you can see here with this 2025 project, I would guess all speculation, um, that they're not just preparing the team to uh, deal with Trumpism. They're going to create Trumpism because for Trump mm -hmm. thus far, it's whatever I want to do based on my gut instinct and my, my business, my, my gut business sense. And it doesn't really go much further than make America great again. Um, so that, that's one angle of this that I'd want to hear your thoughts on. What the hell is Trumpism? Um, or if these guys are creating it, what is it going to be? I think you've sort of sketched out the outlines of it across this conversation. Um, uh, but then there's, so that's one aspect I wanted to ask you about. And the second aspect of that question is who, who might be the uh, heir apparent? if indeed mm. uh, there is one, or at least the transitional figure to carry us forward um, uh, beyond uh, Trump. And sorry, I'm doing this to you. One is the doctrine itself, Trumpism, mm -hmm. and how it might relate to these people. The second is who might be the heir apparent, according to what you've seen and looked at. But against that background, I have to put the third part in. 
what do you think of RFK? Does RFK connect to any of these people? And what's the picture with him? I know a mm. lot of people dismiss him. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not at all pro RFK. Um, but he's an interesting figure to me. I think there, there are many different directions. He could zig and zag as this whole thing develops. And I don't think he should be left out of this picture any more than, say, a Vivek character. Or with mm -hmm. the recent um, girl boss gun porn we've seen from, like, uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So I'll do the RFK one first. So I actually haven't followed him super closely. And it was mostly because I just sort of have written him off. I don't really see him as a, a real legitimate player. And I guess maybe that isn't entirely fair because he does have the Kennedy name. Um, I think, honestly, the biggest thing that I, I wrote him off for was his voice. I just don't see his, his voice being... Um, for him to be a a presidential figure or something like that, I just think is is um, just a non-starter with the I way that he talks. Think it, I just think it's such a not to carry off on this, but just when you when you think about the the abject fetishization of uh, the weak and the differently abled, um, I think that that's that might just be a case where it doesn't resonate for you. That could but be, for yeah. An, an entire other side, you know, it could be like, oh, I feel for him, you know. Oh, don't talk to him that way. Um, anyway, but then, but like then, leadership and and um, being deserving of sympathy or in, in engendering sympathy in people, those things don't tend to, like on a on a on a gut level. I think those things don't tend to to go yeah. together well. You don't want to feel seen, sorry for your leader. Have Have you ever seen him in a tight t shirt? Now that is true. Yeah, so he does have mm -hmm. that going for him. And One thing I haven't did, listened to yet is his conversation with Dave Smith. Did you hear that? No, I haven't. Dave Smith at the beginning of the conversation. This is I'm getting this this second hand, but I trust the trust the source. Um, he uh, at the beginning, RFK seemed to make a pretty open like invitation to him to be his vice president. He basically asked him, like, do you want to be my vice president? And, uh, and this is right around the time where there was the rumors about RFK getting involved with the libertarians and everything. And 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 then Dave proceeded to just completely fucking undress him for an hour. I saw some of the clips of it where he had RFK just like spluttering. Just and it was interesting because it seemed like Dave was like defending his territory or something. Um, but anyway, so I think I I do have how do we talk about this um so the thing that that rfk has historically been known for other than his name obviously is the uh uh the thing affiliated with the events of the past several years um, a, a medical thing that doesn't bear mention yeah right exactly so he has you i i suppose you can't underestimate the power of the 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 white woman <laughs> And and he definitely has a huge following of passionate white women, um, the 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 soccer mom cabal. I think that can't be underestimated. So I think if I I don't I don't buy him as like a legitimate VP candidate. I could eat my words on that. Um, but I think that it would be valuable, and I can see the political utility in bringing him on board somehow. I think Trump is an inevitability. The question is, um, who is Trump going to be a vehicle for? If 
the the people I think are going he's going to be the vehicle for are the ones who actually wind up using him as a vehicle. I think it would behoove them to to throw him a bone somehow to to incorporate him, bring him on board in some sense. Um, at the same time, I don't know to what extent he is the the whole thing. The thing that that Dave was really dragging him through the coals over was Israel, and and he had very unsatisfying even even grading on politician speak he had very unsatisfying answers for that um so i don't know to what extent he is a an actual regime insider who's trying to cast himself as an outsider um but at like at the end of the day he would still be a regime insider i don't know these are just kind of, kind of some scattered thoughts that i have on him i haven't thought about him well, super deep i i didn't i didn't want to make it all about that just we can we can move on to the other two points but i do want to observe before we do that trump was in a position to re release all the shit about the kennedy assassination mm -hmm. and chose not to yes and one of the other things that rfk is known for is wanting to dismantle the cia as his uh as his elders and his family had wanted to do. Um, and we saw what the results of that were. Mm. And so the combination of um, uh, Trump having sat on that, you know, maybe he was just forced to. Absolutely, that's possible. And maybe nothing will come of this. But, you know, it's kind of like Napoleon sends the different elements of his army out separately and they march separately, but then they converge perfectly at the right time, seemingly, you know, disconnected and then pow. Um, having a hang fire on something like that uh, Kennedy business, it's about to be useless because the people for whom it would be a, 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 um, a, a gestalt shattering shock, that boomer generation you just talked about, they're about to go. Mm -hmm. But But the timing of them being about to go out the door, but a massive realization about it before they do, and someone with a Kennedy name who's taken this stance that these things have to be taken apart, you know, maybe he could be an attorney general. Who knows? You know, mm. as uh, as we saw members of his family, uh, you know, playing playing that role in the past. Um, anyway, uh, so moving along to and no no warranties expressed or implied. This is just rampant uh, speculation. But um, so yeah, in terms of Trumpism itself, how these people might be trying to create it and who they might. Um, come up with. I, I saw you mentioned some very interesting things in one of your discussions about Vivek and the way he came in. And, uh, and you know, I noticed it before I even heard you uh, discuss that. Maybe you can open up and tell people since I, you know, what 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 it is I'm talking about that you mentioned. But um, uh, before that, I saw um, Vivek get up on stage, you know, and Trump was like, you know, speak for one minute, you know, uh -huh. and he, he it didn't feel like uh, like these guys were the best buddies, you know. Yeah. So, what's and, what's yeah, up with he, all that? He got up and he barnstormed for like five minutes. <laughs> yeah. Um. So when I w was really kind of in the in the 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 beginning stages of of parsing some of this stuff out, I I was trying to figure out what the angle was here. So I I had I recalled that Curtis Yarvin was going around in 2020 making the podcast circuits telling everybody that the best thing that could happen would be a Biden reelect would, would be a Biden election. Um, because, uh, number one, it would just take the temperature down in the room in general. It was very obvious at that point that Trump was not going to, that Trump was going to fish in the Rubicon, not cross the Rubicon to use his analogy. And, and really that the country is just not at a place where they're ready for someone to go cross the Rubicon that it would be very good for the country to spend four years with Joe Biden sucking all the energy out of the room, that it would completely deflate the Democratic Party 
and that it would show the people what their regime actually is. It's this doddering old dementia patient. And so I was, I was of a mind there then. I, so I was thinking, well, so you've got the, the Yarvin Teal connection. You've got the Teal Zuckerberg connection. His like famously the electoral fortification occurred through $400 million from Mark Zuckerberg. And I was like, Hmm, I wonder if this is a coincidence. Um, which made me wonder uh, about the the status of that fortification with this upcoming election. Um, and so then I was of the mind that, okay, we're setting up for another Biden election. Like this is, we're, we're going balls deep in this now. And then I started watching Vivek and I was like, okay, now this is a different thing. There's some, there's something else happening here. What's his angle? Because shut up, Siri. They're always listening. Um, there's something going on here with Vivek. He's obviously not just like running by himself and he's not running against Trump. And he's talking about being like the insurance policy in case Trump gets, uh, gets, gets uh, uh, taken out somehow. But even then, like, I'm like, he's not going to get elected. Like there's no way he's coming in and actually thinking he's going to be elected. And so what's his, like, what's his angle? I was expecting when he went into the Iowa caucuses, I was expecting, you know, he's probably going to get, I don't know, two or 3%, something like that, which would going from zero to two or 3% would have been pretty impressive with being a complete nobody, being a Hindu, being, um, you know, a, a, a pharma CEO, you know, all these things are all like demerits against him. And then getting blacked out by the media, he had just started doing all the podcast circuits and stuff just before that going on Tim pool, picking up all the, the Ashley St. Clair and Benny Johnson and all of these like stock conservative influencers. And so I was expecting, you know, two or 3% and that'd be a great success. And then we'll build up and we'll see what happens in the summer. And then I heard he got like almost 8%. And I was like, Whoa, okay, this is actually a thing that's happening. And then he dropped out and it blew my mind. This, I was like, this doesn't make any sense to me at all, unless this was pre-planned. And then not only did he drop out, but he immediately endorsed Trump and said, I'm flying out there to go, go join him. It's like, okay, now this is very interesting. So he's very much um, ingratiating himself to Trump, but it seems to me like Trump would need him more than he would need Trump. What's he gaining from, you know, like he's, why would he do all of this so that he could get some like cabinet position or something like that? That doesn't, that doesn't jive for me. Some like uh, a billionaire venture capitalist guy, he wrote his books and everything. He's going to run for president. And then he's just going to drop out right away and go like, none of these things squared for me. And then I watched his his relationship to Trump on stage, and I said, Trump doesn't want this guy here. He's he's there against Trump's will. Trump, so so I don't know. There's a few different ways you can interpret this. He's got some kind of leverage on Trump. He's, you know, uh, Trump recognizes that he needs him. He's a legitimate candidate. He's he's a uh um he's what's the term I used? Uh um I can't remember. Basically, like he's the he's his, he's Trump's babysitter, essentially. And something, and then what really reinforced this for me was, I think it was the next day or the day after, um, I turned on notifications on Twitter for his tweets because I want to track what he's saying and see where where he's pointing. And I get a notification and he says, just left a meeting with President Trump. Uh, he swore to me that uh, he will never, there will never be a CBDC in, uh, in, in the United States. And I was like, okay, Trump has no fucking idea what a CBDC is. Trump doesn't care what a CBDC is. So... This isn't like some. This isn't some uh, policy agenda from Trump's perspective. This is very much something that's on Vivek's radar. So Vivek went in there and had a conversation with him about something that Vivek values that Trump is kind of like, yeah, whatever. 
And the first thing he does when he leaves the conversation is he goes and tweets and says, hey, Trump just told me all this. Now, if I'm Trump and I have a conversation with this, you know, uppity, you know, upstart here who's coming in and bringing his agendas to me and, to, and he, he extracts some kind of a guarantee from me and then immediately goes and tells the whole world. The one thing that's never going to happen again is him and I having a private meeting. You know, he's that's 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 just not going to fly. But then two or three hours later, Trump goes out on stage and says, I will never allow a central bank's digital currency. And so th so that this made it very it, it seems very evident to me that um, uh, Trump has handlers. And I think he always has had handlers. But I think the handlers that he has now, I think there's I think there's a, a my my supposition here is that there is a war between his handlers. There's the I guess you might say the neocon or Zionist uh, wing of handlers. And then there's the uh, Silicon Valley Project 2025 wing of handlers. And these people are definitely not on the same side. They definitely don't want to see the same um, uh, like uh, policy prescription platform uh, with the Trump administration. One wants to weaponize him. The other wants to, uh, wants to, to leech him. So then when Jamie Dimon... And uh, uh, Stephen Schwartzman came out at Davos and said, Jamie Dimon especially, he says, Trump was right on the three things he said. It was like uh, etched in my brain. He was right on immigration, the economy, and NATO. And my perception of Jamie Dimon at the time was, you know, he's just a, you know, he's part of the Borg. And having someone who's like part of the Borg come out and say, Trump is right. We should be nice to Trump's to the MAGA people. Like these are your fellow Americans. We need to treat them with decency. Recognize that they actually have a point. That a lot of these things. This is this is sacrilege to the regime uh, 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 dogma to say that 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 Trump is right about NATO. Trump is right about the economy. Trump is right about immigration. All these things are sacrilege. And he went on to say that um, even his very liberal friends in the Northeast are very upset about this immigration situation. I don't know if that's true or not, but the fact that Jamie Dimon is saying that at Davos is a very strong signal that the institutional money is behind Trump. You don't come out and say something like that um, willy nilly. This isn't Jamie Dimon's not just like shooting off the mouth and saying stuff off the top of his head at Davos when he's saying things like that. Um, so that was the where I kind of saw where Vivek was 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 essentially angling himself into to Trump and now beginning to essentially operate Trump. And I think having Trump under indictment is very uh, beneficial to someone who wants to be able to weaponize and, and control him, which again gets me back to the idea of this electoral fortification thing working out awfully well for this Silicon Valley elite who are um, using Trump as a vehicle in my, my estimation. Um, so as for what Trumpism looks like i think we've we've touched on a lot of the aspects of it thus far it's de there's definitely you know populism nationalism um uh that qualified nationalism that we right, discussed right, previously <laughs> right um i think i think uh autarky is probably a um a useful term in in this particular context i think we're moving in a direction where there are a lot of it kind of overlaps a little bit with this nationalism idea um, which I should say, I'm on the record saying that I think the concept of the nation state is dying. I think the concept of the nation state is going away. And we're, I don't know if it's going to be in five to 10 years or 50 to 100 years, but pretty soon people aren't going to identify with their their national identity in the same way. I think the 
um, we're going to begin organizing ourselves more along uh, uh, digital tribal lines versus geographical tribal lines. And we're still, I don't know what it's going to look like. We're still kind of uh, figuring that out as a species. But yeah, the, for, for, for anyone who's interested, check out my recent stream with AM about uh, imperialism and the way in which uh, minorities are deterritorialized um, and they have mm. to live side by side in neighborhoods, how that was, or in their own, uh, they try to take over villages. You know, they attempt to establish a minimal amount of uh, territory through something that's, you know, could happen in the U.S. under something like uh, how um, Jared Taylor envisions, you know, free association being a potential pathway to um, some increased control over your immediate environment and circumstances as you live together in a framework like this. Anyway, just throwing a plug in there. So, but you, you're, you're thinking that the nation state, uh, is, is likely going to disappear and, uh, and that people in a deterritorialized sense will, uh, will have their own, whatever affinity cohorts that, 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 that work digitally. Indeed, as we see it now where, you know, I get on a Twitter space and I'm talking to people in six different countries, but we're hanging out and having drinks with each other. Yes. Uh, Balaji Srinivasan wrote the book, The Network State. And uh, he kind of describes part of what I think this dynamic is is uh, developing into. And it's really just kind of you could sort of play out like game theory out the um, the effects of the Internet on the way that people organize themselves and the way communication has changed and um, uh, the ability to travel. And, uh, you know, it just it's the nation state as a technology is starting to become a little clunky. And I think that's going to increase to increasingly become the case um, as you get. Uh, niche uh cultures within um a larger polity that um or not a, not even a polity but like a larger like group of people within national uh, geographical boundaries they're because we're 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 24/7 connected to all the rest of the world it's changing what a culture is and how a culture affects a person and the way a person self identifies and strictly doing it based on geographical bounds is just uh it's 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 a clunkier way of doing things um that I think there's. I'm not. I'm not um, denigrating it because I think that the. I'm. I'm very much inclined to the blood and soil notion of having a homeland and being associated with your homeland. And I think a lot of um, negative effects have come from from drifting away from that. But I think some of this is just inevitable. Um, I do think yeah. uh, a model that's going to become a lot more rigid is is a um, more of like a return kind of to a city state notion, where you're going to have a, a very clear polity within a city. Which gets into the free private cities idea, where you have the Charter Cities Institute and I think the Pre Free Private Cities Foundation, um, where there's overlap with the seasteading movement, and there's a lot. And then you get into crypto and Bitcoin, and there's there's Peter Thiel fingerprints all over this as well, which ties into Bukele and Malay, and then um, the creation of free private cities around the world. I think this is we're starting to get a picture of what this is going to look like, but I think we're still probably a, a, a at least a couple of decades removed from it. Yeah, and um, I would I would want to add in response to uh, Caravaggio, I've seen many times on the channel, so I'm not casting any um, aspersions. I've seen uh, that person in the comments many times. Um, for my part, um, I don't know that the, uh, the nation state is going to go away, um, but it's certainly uh, a framework that, you know, what is it, Westphalia or whatever in the 1600s? I mean, um, it's... Uh, it's taken some dings and it's currently under very obvious threat. 
Um, and there are obviously forces doing everything within their power in order to destroy it at present. And it's absolutely manifest. That's that's clear. Um, and it's from the top and the bottom as well. Like the the globalization effect and the atomization effect are both happening simultaneously intentionally. Yeah. So so I don't think it's there's uh, I don't think given that 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 is manifestly the case at present. I don't think that the idea that the nation state might be on the way out is one that should be just dismissed out of hand. I personally don't want to see it go away. I am more I don't inclined, either. as you said, uh, to, to, towards a, um, let us say, uh, blood and soil brought down to date. Um, and I did, so I just wanted to respond to, uh, 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 God damn it, I'm fucking old. Um, Caravaggio in, in that respect. Also, uh, that person put, um, you know, the idea that Indians and Chinese would like to have a word. Both of those are empires. They're not nation states. Mm -hmm. India and China are both empires and they, they contain within them any number of different nations. There are whole states within both of those empires that, that see themselves as entirely distinct and speak their own languages. So to assert that India or China are nations um, rather than empires and that they themselves are examples of persisting um, nation states in this day and time just seems to me a bit um, much. No, no disrespect intended. But, but, but against the, the background of what we're really looking at here, you know, I, I got the impression, correct me if I'm wrong, that you're talking about a framework and a background for what you think Trumpism uh, would have to be from the perspective of the technocrats <clears throat> under consideration. And um, as we've said at the outset, none of this amounts to an endorsement. It's an attempt to um, make a guess about what's going to happen next. So please, pl please go on. <clears throat> yeah. So I think the, um, if I'm looking at, obviously when you get, political coalitions together, um, by definition, making a political coalition is, um, uh, uh, compromising it's watering down. It's finding your common points that you can agree on and, and agreeing to forsake the, uh, or, or at least put till later the things you disagree on. It might be a, all right, we both have the same enemy. So we're going to join together. We're going to take out the enemy and then we're going to have our fight over the things that we disagree on. So looking at the things that unite these different factions that are are rising up, I see um, the the major things are uh, China hawkishness, essentially, uh, suspicion or cynicism toward China, uh, immigration, wanting... Now, the it's silly to expect any form of like complete immigration restriction. It's just never going to happen. The, the decision here is between um, infinity third worlders and some sort of a legal immigration framework where we try to bring high value people, yada, yada, yada. This is very much something that they subscribe to. The, the, the technocrats very much want to continue this process, this, this Anglo process of culling the best and brightest from all the other um, regions of the world and bringing them here to work on our shit and build up American manufacturing and yada, yada, yada. Um, which is interestingly is kind of a uh, macrocosm of the university effect where you have the this like the IQ shredder observation from uh, Spandrel, where you have the the university was like the urban center that brought in all the people from the rural areas, all the high value people into the the university. Um, then America is doing this on the on the on the the, the global level, um, bring everyone into the American uh, university. <clears throat> um, so uh, immigration restriction, uh, China, um, uh, 
conservative fiscal policy, I think, is something that's going to be making a um, a rebound. Um, and then uh, the other thing I was thinking of was um, I don't think that I don't think something like NATO or the UN is going to be. Um, I don't. I don't. A lot of these things, it's just to to completely extract the United States as a unit. It, Begs the question of what is the United States as a unit? What does it mean to extract from these things? A lot of this stuff is you can't just write this stuff on paper and and, and draw it out. But I think we're we're going to start watching a trend of seeing the U.S. pulling back from global engagement. I think this is a matter of of um, simple necessity to maintain the structure of the system. The system is is beginning to collapse under its own complexity, compounded by the competency crisis, and so. One of the ways that you can try to preserve a complex system that's beginning to collapse under its own weight is by decomplexifying. And one of the ways you do that is removing the extraneous uh, components and restoring the, the, the center of it. Um, and maybe this is a, a temporary pullback for the sake of a long-term uh, re-extension. You know, again, I'm, I'm not under the impression that we're going to see a complete and total uh you know, this isn't the rise of Caesar. I think that's minimum, probably fifty years away, maybe longer. Um, but there's definitely going to be a shift, and I think that this is people who are reacting. Um, they're not cooperating explicitly so much as they're following the same incentive, which is shit's fucked up, and if we don't fix shit, then we're going to be fucked up. And if you're dealing with reality, then you don't necessarily have to be explicitly coordinated because reality becomes like a, a shelling point for everybody that um, they, they can coalesce around the truth or the, the, the facts of the matter. Um, so this goes along with, I think uh, I'm sure saying this name is probably going to, going to uh, trigger some people, but um, uh, Peter Zihan, who's a very much a regime toady mouthpiece of the regime, but even he's been signaling for a while now that we're that we're, we've passed the death of globalism. That globalism is 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 done for, um, especially the events of the last um, you know four or five years ago, revealed that so much of this global system is just is just teetering on a brink. That's perpetu we're perpetually on the cusp of absolute crisis, and so just simply out of out of necessity. Um, we're going to have to pull back from that brink, and there's too many, too many disparate forces that are all moving in that same direction, all trying to um, uh, recoalesce around the homeland, so to speak. And he forecasts, and I happen to agree with this part of his forecast, that we're heading into a dark era for for everyone. It's going to be hardship for everybody, but the United States is actually going to be. It's not going to be as bad in the U.S. as it is everywhere else. So even though everything is going to be on the decline. The United States is going to be declining less fast than everyone else. And so the effect of that is that the U.S. is going to be set up to persist more into the future than than other um, uh, other polities. But I do think that we're going to see a rise of this new kind of nationalism. This seems to be a trend that is you know, nationalism is kind of the only word that we have for it. I think it's a genuine um we're genuinely encountering a new sort of a political phenomenon that we don't have the pro the proper word for uh, because it's sort of like nationalism with a more ambiguous definition of what a nation is, but it's yeah, multipolar versus yeah. versus unipolar or even bipolar. Yeah. And propositional and meritocratic <clears throat> seems to, very much to be central to the thinking of, uh, of these sorts of people. Um, mm -hmm. And in any case, we're going to have to see, because um, 
there's what's going to be promised prior to the election. And then there's going to be what happens as always. And we'll have to see whether or not in the course of that transition, if indeed any of this happens, um, Mm -hmm. whether or not any of the things promised get carried forward or whether or not it's going to be, you know, just, you know, paint by numbers as we've seen uh, previously. Well, do you have any sense so to, to, you know, put a cork in that part, you know, we'll see what emerges as uh, Trumpism uh, and perhaps according to your hypothesis, which you've said many times is only a hypothesis, you know, whether or not we see um, them impose a new framework on the more amorphous claims of Trump, you know, many of which can be seen as opportunistic, but not all of them. Um, uh, so anyway, setting setting that aside, um what kind of figures do you see them wanting to put in place? I mean, Vivek is one that we've talked about. I, I can't see him being the replacement for Trump, but you know, Mm-mm. who knows? Um, are there any others that stand out for you that are a part of this crew? Um, I heard you mention in a previous stream, you know, JD Vance is another figure that they've, I mean, they, they worked hard on putting him into place. Um, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Steve Bannon was always shilling Vance. Um, Mm -hmm. They they pushed him into a Senate position, which is, you know, a more senior long-term kind of thing. Um, Other than Vivek, other than Vance, are there any that, you know, stand out for you that are up and coming? And and throw in with that, you know, what what do you make of uh, Gabbard? Oh, (laughs) yeah, I guess I've stopped. I'd stopped thinking about her for a long time, but I'm starting to get the sense that I need to think about her more. which isn't always the worst thing to do if you catch my drift. Um, I don't think that it's that that Vivek is the next um, is the next Trump. I do think that there's I think there's a very good chance that Vivek is the next president after Trump. Um, if you watch the way that he um, the the way that the 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 average person reacts to him. Go on, like, go r- watch any of his interviews. The there's the Sean Ryan show. Um, he's talked to that little dweeb David Pakman a couple of times. Um, he's talked to uh, Jordan Peterson numerous times. There's several other long form interviews that he's done. And go read uh, uh, Flagrant by uh, Andrew Schultz is another great conversation. Uh, go read the comments and see. You will, you you will scroll for hours before you find something that's even just like a tepid endorsement of him. People rave about him. And these are just like the average normies. The average normies, like if this is what the future politician, what a future politician is like, then, then I'm voting Republican the rest of my life. You know, this, like this is David Pakman's audience. Um, so I think that, that he definitely is going to have staying power, but I don't see him having the, he's a little too wonkish in my opinion. I think he comes off like, he can be, you know, he he had a great conversation with Andrew Schultz and there, you know, he had some kind of some zingers and it's a bunch of comedians talking and he's bantering with them and and he was able to get along with them, but he didn't have the he definitely stuck out. Like he definitely was not one of their crowd. Um he's got a little bit of an egghead to him. Um but the honestly, I think that the inheritor of Trumpism may be Bukele. And that, well, that's now just, you're gonna you're gonna have to jump over since you haven't covered it in this stream with your mimesis and the idea of setting the uh, example so that it can be followed. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because otherwise, you know, the, the context won't be, it won't make sense to people. How the fuck could Bukele be the inheritor, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. So this is uh mimetic theory by uh, the, which was something that was, was coined by uh, Rene Girard essentially is um, a, so this, this idea of build a Caesar, which is the thing you're referring to uh, was something I got to credit again, my buddy, Jason, at the two bit podcast. He said, there's all these different little right wing, you know, uh, Caesar-esque sort of figures that are popping up. You had um, you had the Brexit phenomenon, then you had Trump, and then you've had a lot of of people who are obviously aping Trump to one degree or another. And he said people get the wrong idea when they're looking at these at these different phenomena. Each of these individual guys doesn't have to be Caesar himself. You just need him to be Caesar in a particular domain. So for for Bukele, it was crime. For Malay, it's like administrative bureaucracy. Um, there's the uh, the guy, the Dutch guy, um, uh, Wilders. For him, maybe it's like it's like environmental policy or something like that. But what happens is each of these guys that goes and 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 does this thing now becomes a model that can that can be re that reflects back. And you you look at that and you're like, well, hey, look, he did this thing and it worked out well. And now we can use that as our test case, and so now we can model that person who who did that thing. Right. And, Kelly and, and, now becomes a model for for, you know, locking up all the criminals. Right. And indeed, that's what we saw more or less. Didn't he just speak to CPAC? Yes. And that's what he basically came and did. I'm the guy who did this thing and it works. Yes. And I'm not saying so, that that Bukele's uh, that it's a one to one thing. Obviously, the United States of America and El Salvador are completely different. There's, yeah. And he indeed he indeed said it. You know, right. your, your solutions don't work for me. Um, but I just want to emphasize for everybody who's listening, if you haven't thought about the idea before, it might seem a little bit strange. But the notion is that you have an example that 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 stands there as a as an instance of success and then uh, taken in aggregate these various pieces, which is, of course, what you're trying to say. I'll shut up here and let you go on taken taken in aggregate. They they amount to uh, a multifaceted set of proofs of success where I'm going to take Bukele off the shelf and put him in this slot for the answer to this problem, et cetera. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, even Vivek even hinted at this when he was doing, I think he was on Tim pool. This was when he was still running. He said, uh, if, um, if I don't make Malay look like a moderate, then I'm not doing my job. There's there, there's the modeling. There's the memetic modeling. Now that Malay exists, say what you want about any of the other bugaboos associated with him. He definitely exists as an example of someone who came in and took a chainsaw to the federal bureaucracy. So if your goal is to take a chainsaw to the federal bureaucracy, then you can say, look, Malay did this and I'm going to I'm going to do like Malay. Bukele is is such a singular phenomenon. It, 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 it's absolutely fascinating studying the way that he uh, came to power. Uh, there's a um, on the website. I am 1776. Benjamin Braddock wrote a great breakdown of how he came to power. And uh, the it's very obvious that he has a large network supporting him, a very powerful network. That's the only reason he's still alive. It 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 beggars belief that he has been able to do everything that he's been able to do. And I know a lot of people want to say, "Oh, that's just obvious. It's just because he's a regime stooge or something like that." Which I, I just I, I can't even wrap my mind around how that would be the case. Well, regime stooge is just it's it's a. It's a thought terminating cliche. Yes. Because yes. anyone with power is going to be someone that you can place in the regime. 
Right. Um, but anyway, leaving that aside, because I mean, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole for people who can't keep up, but the, um, the, the, yes, I agree with you entirely that without powerful backing, he'd be deader than a fucking doornail and gone, which means mm -hmm. someone extruded him as an experiment. And now they've, they, they already had the, the uptake, the media uptake for it arranged. Um, so yeah, clearly. And they had the 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 institutional networks and the funding and the ability the awareness. If you listen to him talk, he's talking about the NGOs, the journalists. Like he understands exactly how the entire global um, Borg system works. He he calls it out directly. Um, so and there's I mean it's like two degrees of Peter Thiel when you start dealing with people associated with Bukele. There's very tight overlaps there. Which again connects into the idea of like the free private cities and the Bitcoin cities and uh, Prospera and Honduras. Uh, these are there's there's big Silicon Valley PayPal mafia connections all over all of this. So I think what we're seeing is um, experiments in modern forms of governance that are inspired by by uh, um, bits and pieces from the past and then bits and pieces from the future that are being molded into a new form of governance structure. And I think um, it's kind of anyone's guess exactly how it's going to play out or exactly which direction it's going to go. But um, what's very clear to me is that this is actually this is something that's happening. You're seeing like a startup approach to building a government or, or 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 overhauling a government. Taking a if you think of it in like startup terms, where you have a company that's bloated and um, full of of uh, of people who should no longer be earning a salary and you know embezzling money and all this sort of stuff, and you come in. And you just do what Elon Musk did with Twitter. Come in, fire 80% of the people, and restore like masculine leadership. Like, no, we're not gonna be, we're not gonna be worrying about a safe environment and um uh, you know, concern about harm and whatever else. No, we're we're gonna run a business here. It's gonna be stripped down, we're gonna do the essentials, and we're gonna start innovating and we're gonna start building something. And if you're not on board, you can go. You, yeah, and you if you haven't if you haven't dealt because I was heavily involved in the startup stuff um, hmm. back in the the second half of the '90s, um, when when my knowledge of tech was much more current, um, and uh, you know I saw the angel investor and the IPO that whole thing go along. I mean, my friends and I at our little shop, you know, we built a whole system called University Angels, which was to set up uh, alumni groups um, and get them. Uh, investing based on school affinity networks of alumni in different um, offerings. You know, I, I saw quite a bit of that world. And for people who haven't seen it, this is going to sound strange, you know, if you haven't been involved in startup and investment, but you, basically the idea is build or buy, you know. Mm -hmm. And with build, you have very much the kind of arrangement that you're talking about, which is where you have these, you know, you have these uh, small companies out there and you invest in them as long as they work and you know you have your exit strategy or whatever uh you may ex uh, um, uh, exercise some influence over how they do their things or you might be hands-off because if it ain't broke don't fix it right and then you have the the buy arrangement which is i'm going to take an existing entity and make of it what i wish you know which might involve gutting it you know and taking out just three key key pieces of intellectual property and selling all the rest you know, I mean, there are many ways that it could be done. So for people who, you know, anyone, 
anyone who has any experience in this world obviously already knows what you're talking about. But for people who don't, that's very much a way that things are done. And you can see it reflected, as you've stated, with Malay being the guy coming in with a hatchet outcome to be determined. Um, and uh, Bukele being one where you say, let's go try this little experiment and let's do it small. You know, we've got a little, you know, a, a business, 100 people or fewer, you know, and let's see how it goes. And maybe this thing can be scaled. Maybe it can't be scaled, you know. So uh, I think it's a perfectly reasonable thing to um, hypothesize that a group of people who cut their teeth in the corporate world, uh, particularly in venture capital and startup in a place like the West Coast, um, would take the, the lessons that they had learned there and apply them. And I mean, just across the board, there are so many ways in which you can see these parallels. I mean, Moldbug shows up from fucking, you know, his tech background, Urbit or whatever the fuck it is. And, um, and comes in talking about, uh, you know, a, a chief executive officer and a president and a king are all monarchs. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know as much about this. People like Aaron McIntyre, certainly people like Charlemagne, um, you know, uh, know quite a bit about Yarvin and his thought. I don't. But but the idea that you got someone who comes out of the tech sector and gets associated with um, neo-reactionism and, uh, and still appears as this figure who, who, who you know, strolls his way through the diff different um discussions and presents these ideas they're they're all i guess i'm moving now towards a, a summary phase um so bear with me they're all um there are so many different interconnecting threads here that i think anyone could and should um take issue with the interpretation of the elements that are in front of us but the fact that these interrelated elements are all present is, I mean, it's just, it's fucking there, you know? Um, so if you, if you don't want to recognize it, um, don't, you know, and, and you, you don't have to like it. Um, none of this again is a expressed or implied endorsement for my part. I, I loathe Vivek, you know, I, whenever I hear him speak, you know, I think you got a little pushback on this from Pete too, but you know, whenever, <laughs> whenever I hear him speak, I'm like, I've never heard anybody more insincere. He sounds like a fucking sideshow huckster. Um, and you know, I call it brown meat, you know, where you, mm. where you mobilize your Suella Braverman or your Vivek. And we all get to celebrate the fact that this base brown person has said all these things that, you know, we wish white people would say, and gosh, they're so cool. Um, but none of that matters. What what I think of it doesn't matter. Um, this is a uh, this is an attempt to to ferret out what's coming and how all these pieces might be interrelated. So from that perspective, I found your uh, your discussions uh, very very interesting. Um, and hence hence I invited you on for this one. Now before we um before we wrap up, I want to give you uh, an opportunity to cover anything. And it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't, you don't have to rush it. If there's anything else that you wanted to cover that you think fits in this framework, since I've cut in so many times, you know, with my own stuff, um, is there, uh, is there anything else you wanted to cover that you didn't, that you think we should, we should know about against this background? A couple of things. Um, first one, just regarding something you were just saying about Moldbug. It's interesting if you read uh, Moldbug's Patchwork, a political system for the 21st century, where he, it's kind of part political philosophy or political theory, part sci-fi sort of, but he describes 
governments governance with the joint stock corporation run by a CEO with a board of directors and um, crypt, cryptographic tools to govern the weapons. And he, he goes all out with it. Um, one of the things he says, this is the third paragraph of the first chapter. He said, or sorry, fourth paragraph. He says, to start the hype machine, let's just say that if anyone can build anything like patchwork, even a tiny, crude, third-world ripoff of patchwork, it is all over for the democratic regimes. It'll be like East Germany competing with West Germany. That's something that uh, that uh, popped out with the conversation about El Salvador. And what's I'm not saying that Bukele is necessarily building patchwork, but what he's building is not super far removed from the patchwork idea. It's verging in that direction of... Uh, essentially, like a privatized society with a CEO as a as a monarch, um, and operating the society for the the sake of of, of of generating productive value from it in a business sense. Um, so, at that point, uh, the other thing I wanted to respond to something that was in the chat back here. Um, it said, "What you call the technocrat counter elite do not want immigration to be limited to the best and the brightest. They want cheap manual labor, just like everyone else." This is a common. Uh, sentiment, but I think it actually doesn't really withstand much critique because if you think about the direction that these technology companies are going with AI, with automation, with uh, 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 the level of, of software and engineering that goes into it, we're moving away from the industrial age. A lot of the industrialization aspect of the economy that needs all this cheap manual labor is quite literally what's being automated. So having the cheap manual labor come in and, and in, if anything, it almost hurts them more because they want that labor to be cheap and offshored where it can stay cheap. When it gets imported, it gets more expensive. You want to have your offshore call center where you can, you can pay people two bucks an hour to run your, your call center or whatever. When you bring them here, then you have to pay them a lot more. So it actually, and you they, don't they have, have to physically incentive. move them. You don't have to right. physically move them in this networked economy. And we've had people from, you know, uh, uh, Tucker Carlson, even when he was on Fox talking about driverless cars and, you know, the disappearance of truckers and how we need to keep jobs for people and that we don't need to bring new people in because we need uh, jobs for the people who are here. And I think we can all agree that economically things are likely to, you know, face plant themselves into the curb, you know, teeth first. Mm -hmm. At, at which point these questions will become much more important. I mean, Vance did that hillbilly elegies thing about disenfranchised populations that are, you know, falling in on themselves. I mean, there's been quite a bit of talk, um, even among some of these uh, types that we've been uh, discussing uh, in, in, in this stream um, about uh, automation and the fact that we're going to end up with ever more uh, surplus population. And when you think about something like a Bukele, this is another dimension that everybody should consider. They've now got the lowest murder rate fucking ever. Uh, I mean, so if, if, if they can pull off what is simply being hypothesized here, which is to have these different international examples, think about the proportion of the, um, illegal immigrant population in the United States at present that came from Central America. I mean, Mexico has been low on the level of immigration, even though they come through Mexico, as most people here know, I hope it's not primarily fucking Mexicans. It's a, you know, in large part, Central Americans, or it was until we started getting shitloads of Somalis and Nigerians and Sudanese and Chinese. Um, but if you pull off something like a Bukele, and there are really big opportunities at home. 
and you don't have to hang out with a bunch of fucking gringos, you know, like when, you know, you won't have to worry about John D seeing you at Walmart and make fun of you as a squatty Central American. You could go home and be a king in your own land. You know, I think that it's at least possible to consider that a lot of these people um, will return. And so uh, there are a couple dimensions here. One, I agree with you that people saying that they, they just want the cheap labor. Yes, some of them do under a model that these people that we're discussing this evening have express, expressly um, stated it's their purpose to supplant. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So I guess the the way that I would would summarize all of this is um, there is a there's a framework that that uh, Jason at the Two Bit Podcast and I have been been working on together, which is essentially starting from the perspective that um, we no longer live in a civilization. We have a lot of technology, but we've lost the things that would make us civilized. Yeah, like the the low trust nature of the society we live in is an indicator that it is not civilized. We essentially live in a jungle full of uh, warring primal tribes, and we just have extra fancy rocks that we use to beat each other up with. We just beat each other up digitally instead of doing it, you know, physically. Um, the task before us is to actually build a, a civilization. We need to to. Uh, treat civilization as something that doesn't just happen accidentally. It's something that takes intentional sacrifice, low time preference, hard work, and we're likely not going to experience the benefits of it ourselves. Our, our progeny will. It's the old uh, the, the, um, aphorism about building trees that your, your children will sit in the shade of. Um, <clears throat> so with the, the, the backdrop of all of this for me is I want to see which direction things are going so that I can skate to where the puck's going rather than where the puck is right now. Because I believe that we it, it is going to come down to us to, to actually have to build this civilization again. We need to re begin to re-amass civilizational capital, um, which has multiple dimensions. You, know, you have social capital, you have economic capital, you have political capital. And ultimately, political capital is something that's downstream from social and economic capital. You have to form intentional tribes of people together who are um are set on this task of building a civilization together not just waiting for daddy to come and and to come home and and fix all the problems for you you know it's not oh it's everything is just so fucked up and you know there's nothing we can do but just sit here and wait for the for the airplane to fall out of the sky we have an opportunity now to begin building a civilization all over again it's kind of like when people first encountered the the new world, they 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 landed on this new world, and there was this great untapped uh, new land full of potential and danger and 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 all this stuff, and they went out and they conquered it. This was part of the American spirit that De Tocqueville wrote about, where he would show up and he would find a cabin that was just like randomly in the middle of a wilderness. There's this cabin that was built up that was half finished. And then it was just left there because people moved on to another place. He's like, this is completely foreign to the old world. Like, you know, we put down roots and we, you know, we have thousand year old buildings and everything, which th there's something to that as well. But there's something that's uniquely American about um, not wilting and pissing your pants and crying when you see, you know, everything's fucked up and, you know, the forces of evil are arrayed against us and yada, 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 however melodramatic you want to get. But actually nutting up and building 
This is like the masculine impulses to build, to produce, to create, and to ultimately build a civilization, which requires amassing capital. And if, you, if you're starting with nothing, then probably the first thing you need to do is make yourself a valuable person and find other valuable people to unite yourself around with, and then begin working cooperatively together. I think we've become very um, sort of passive and receptive and in even reactionary itself is a, a form of passivity. Because if you're the one reacting, we should be the ones that people are reacting to, not the ones who are reacting. What's the, the Walter White, I am the one who knocks. That's something we have to earn. It's not something that we're going to have as a, as a birthright. It's something we have to earn through our own blood and sweat. And there's a lot of... We're just in the infancy of understanding what the internet, what social media, what digital technology, what this is going to do to the human species. For all intents and purposes, I mean, the smartphone as a mass proliferation phenomenon has been around for like barely more than a decade. We're, we're infants with this stuff. It opens up entirely new worlds to us, but in order to access those new worlds, to be the ones who settle them, to embrace our colonial heritage and go out and settle these new lands, we have to first recognize that they exist and then believe that we can go settle them. You have to, there has to be a hope of the future in order for you to actually reach that future and create that future. But blackpilling and, and doomerism runs amok, particularly among our circles. And I think this is a kind of a temporary phenomenon. It's kind of like you can only drink out of the, the faucet of doom for so long before it's going to overwhelm you. But then you have to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and be like, all right, well, if there's going to be a world worth having, if my children are going to live in a world that's better than the one I live in, then I need to get to work now. I need to start building it now. And I need to find the other people who, who, who think likewise. You can complain about all you want about the, um, the, the, uh, the forces of evil, the whatever tribe it is on this side or that side that's, that's arrayed against you. But at the end of the day, you've got to just pick yourself up and you've got to, got to go do battle. So I think this is a, there's a lot of people that want to talk about the, lo the loss of masculinity or um, how uh, we're all feminized, we're all trapped in the longhouse. Well, at the end of the day, you're saying that you're, you're, you're getting your asses kicked by a bunch of women, which is ultimately, I think it's a form of impotent signaling. It's not to say the longhouse doesn't exist. It's not to say that these forces of evil aren't there. It's that once you realize they're there, you can choose. Are we going to sit and complain about them and bemoan about how bad they are and and get the crabs in the buckets uh, phenomenon where we just start pulling down everybody. No, 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 no. You're a fed. This is a, um, the, you can't get involved in this thing because they're just going to smack you down. At some point, we need a, a, a revival of this American spirit, this fundamentally American spirit. I saw someone said something about American exceptionalism. I'm not even saying it's, it's, it's what makes America exceptional. I'm saying it's what makes America, America. And I'm an American. So I want to be around this spirit, this kind of rugged Americana, um, uh, unbounded masculinity. I think it's something that has been um, under attack from all directions, but I hear far too many people complaining about the attack and far few people, far fewer people actually putting themselves in a position to do something about that. Um, so that's, that's the, um, I guess that would be the, the, the appeal or the, the inspirational call to action that I'll make. Right. Don't be fully blackpilled recognize your limits but recognize that within your ambit there are things that you can grasp and shape if you can see clearly if you're not ideologically blinded um 
And uh, uh, at the same time saying, you know, there's shit that is entirely out of our control. You know, as mm -hmm. the Titans move across the board and fight, you know, I, I don't buy into the um, the idea that, uh, you know, I have pinned on my Twitter, you know, d democracy is the opiate of the masses. You know, I, mm -hmm. I think it's important to be realistic about um, uh, what we can change and what we can't and to attend to those. God, now I sound like a 12 stepper, but, you know, um, attend to those things, attend to those things that we uh, that we can deal with, which is, you know, starts immediately with with us with ourselves and uh those closest to us and then you know move from there and i certainly i mean half the shit that i spout on twitter is is dark as hell or that i i retweet um i justify that by saying that um you know we have to know what's going on you know mm -hmm. don't lie to your doctor you know and, sh and mm. share the situation that we're in um but that doesn't mean that uh that we're necessarily fucked i mean we still might be fucked mm -hmm. but um in God's great creation, <laughs> yes. In God's great creation, the you know hope should not die, and um, and we should uh, be of uh, good courage, you know, and uh, and of good cheer to see what we can uh, do about it. And of course, we're nobody's recommending that uh, all the different people in the patchwork of worthy nations need to do do things uh, as we do. Um, but I'm 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 cheering for uh, all of you uh, out there. You know, especially my Brit friends who send me delicious biscuits and got me hooked on uh, on English tea. So, yeah, um, I'm very, very happy to have you on. Um, obviously, uh, there be aspects of this that the the blood and soil crew will, you know, grind their teeth about. But I appreciate them having come in and uh, listened. Um, because, again, we're just trying to talk about what we see out there. And even if you don't like... Um, you know, let's say someone really think it sucks. You know, 70% of it was bad. We'll carry away uh, what I think has to be at a minimum, a good 30% of solid insights. I mean, that's even taking a, a skeptical view. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, if you if if you think that there's uh, some, some other angle about this that we need to know about, you know, if you didn't cover it in the vitriol, in the, uh, in the comments, uh, put it in the replies uh, below and we'll check it out. Um, but uh, before I let you go, uh, please shill for yourself again. I apologize. Please accept my apologies. Because of that strike, I cannot put, until it lapses, I can't put any links in the uh, description for people to uh, be able to find you. So please uh, let us know what you have coming up. You mentioned you have a couple discussions at least coming up. And let everyone know where they can find you. Yes. So Kingpilled is the channel on YouTube. Uh, we do live streams there. We try to go live two or three times a week. Um, and then uh, also your podcatchers, King Pilled. Uh, the logo on Apple Podcasts is our old logo. I can't get it to update. I can't get it to change. So if you see it, it's going to look different than the the logo that you see on the on the YouTube channel or, or, or Spotify or, or what have you. Um, but it is the same show. Um, on March 11th, I'm going to be going on to on Academic Agent and talking... Same subject, essentially, PayPal Mafia, Counter Elite, this, this phenomenon. Awesome. I beat that bastard to you. <laughs> Excellent. You, did. you on first. I stole his fucking thunder. But yeah. all joking aside, I totally recommend A. He's gonna have totally he's gonna have other angles on it. He obviously is um well versed in uh, elite theory, and I am not. So everybody should check that one out. But uh sorry, please go on. Yes, yes. 
Um, also, let me check my calendar here real quick, just so I can get the exact dates correctly. Um, go to the the Two Bit Podcast and subscribe over there because he does uh, the Friender Fed bit is is a lot of fun, and we're going to be doing uh, uh, Friender Fed, uh, the PayPal Mafia here uh, this Friday. And then um, I'm going to be talking with him and another good friend of ours, David Gornoski, uh, next Friday, March 8th. Um, so those are those are conversations that are coming up here um, in the near future that um, if you guys enjoyed this one, you'll probably enjoy those as well. And then you can follow me on Twitter at Real King Pill. That's where I'm I'm uh, most active. Excellent. Well, then uh, just in closing, I want to thank everyone for coming in. Uh, thank you very much. It's been a great stream. Great discussion. Thank you. Uh, Matt, very much. I've enjoyed it a great deal. Any anytime you have anything you feel like discussing and you think it'd be a good fit for the channel, you're uh, you're very welcome. And I want to give uh, one last shout out again to uh, Pete Quinones. I hope everybody follows mm. him. I would never have uh, come across Matt, and um, obviously Pete has lots of other people on, lots of other very interesting uh, guests. Um, oh, and uh, Thomas Anderson is saying AA or AM. Um, it's uh, AA. It's on Academic Agents channel on YouTube that uh, Matt's um, Matt's uh, stream will be coming up. But I, I'll go ahead and plug uh, Apostolic Majesty too, as he's uh, he's fucking top drawer. All right, ladies and gents, uh, thank you all very much for being here. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to have you. Uh, until next time, I am Semiagog, and I am out. <laughs>